Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 214th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's still sneaking cards into your closet from the comfy confines of our home-like prisons. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, James. Uh, yet another week here, locked in the basement. How are you holding up, up there? I've only been outside of the house once this week. I looked like some kind of post-apocalyptic character wearing a black bandana, black sunglasses, and black everything else with just a tiny sliver of skin showing and spent 20 minutes decontaminating myself on the way back in the door, which certainly disincentivizes further trips to the great outdoors despite this beautiful, relatively safe forest, which is right outside my house. Mm. That your your process for leaving and getting back in is more obnoxious than mine, but it is uh it's unfun regardless. We took a trip to the grocery store and it was all sorts of bundling and cleaning after we got home and I had to go pick up something else and it was a process, so we're managing, but it's not it's not fun. But man, we are looking at at least in the US, I think this is gonna be I'm not expecting to go back to the office until uh, probably June, I think. I, I'm preparing for more like August to September because I don't see how the world governments get themselves out of, extricate themselves from this problem without, as we've said earlier, rushing a vaccine or something. Yeah. The One of the things that they can do that I think is probably likely in the short to midterm is a antibody test, which apparently uh, one was announced ha- having been developed by health services in New York City that are uh, working on the health, the pointed health crisis there, um, where I think they had 800 deaths or something yesterday. It was something ridiculous. Um, uh, because the antibody test will be able to identify those of us who may have already encountered the virus, fought it off, and don't actually need to be at home necessarily. Now, there's some trickiness there because you'd want to make sure that, A, you can't, those people can't be reinfected, B, they can't be carriers. Um, if those two things are true, then in theory, they, those people could kickstart the economy. Well, supposedly, and all of this is hearsay, right? And at this point, we're just gossiping no different than anyone else is. It's just that we get to have a platform of a couple thousand people that listen to us. Uh, supposedly... There is precedence showing that even if you have been infected and gotten better, you still can be reinfected. You do not become immune in the same way that you do with other illnesses. Which would... I had seen some early information out of China. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, I, I, I don't know exactly where it comes from. I, I'm kind of cross-quoting a friend who's a nurse who had just, you know, I heard it kind of secondhand. Like, oh, yeah, this is a thing that they're finding. So... Uh, that you know, that's the best yeah. that I can do. Now, is that true? I don't know. If it is true, even in some capacity, that is that's a whole other layer of difficulty because if that <laughs> yeah. then then you can't. How do you get rid of it? Right? Like even if you vaccinate everyone, but like, do your vaccines even still work? If it's a type of thing where you can catch it and then re catch it again, like 
let me tell you, if it's the type of thing, if even if even 10% of people are subjected to it in a sense that they can be re-infected uh, after they have gotten vaccinated or have already had the disease itself, that means it could take years to get rid of it. Like that's Well, it's... And ultimately, in a situation like that, the governments will not accept years. They will put people on the altar of sacrifice and go with the herd herd immunity strategy, which is basically let the virus run its course and weed out the people that genetically can't handle it. And it will be one of the most pivotal public policy decisions of the last, I want to say 100 years, but it might even be 500 years. Like. Then the number of people that would die as a result of that that failure would be just beyond comprehension. Be like black plague, as essentially as where we'd be. I'd be dead. I don't doubt that I would but, die. Well, the thing about the thing about the black plague, right, is at least you can say people didn't understand the the science well enough to defend themselves. We're in a different situation now. The tools were here to both be more vigilant in prevention of a pandemic of this nature, and to make sure that. The response was faster to make sure that uh, government programs that could have intervened in the supply chain management to make sure that everybody got the equipment they needed on time and that people got face masks on time and that people were sent home faster. There are so many stumbles here, not just in the U.S., but in many countries that uh, it's going to take a long time to parse victim from villain and figure out how to move forward in a productive fashion yeah so i mean i'm not people are talking about like oh things have been slid back from early april to early may and i'm like you're thinking too small term like any any government that's announcing things in that way is doing it to prevent a a broader response and panic when they're dealing with things in month-long chunks but realistically speaking you know, if if that reinfection thing is a thing then we're talking about months and months Mm -hmm. it'll be about People needing to figure out how to fit into an economy that only exists virtually. And, uh, you know, all of this is even crazier when you consider, like, is it possible this happens again? Like, what if another virus comes out? You know, this is just one case, right? This is COVID-19, but because it started in 2019, but there are other viruses that we know are, are illnesses, whatever, I don't remember if, exactly what the correct term is, of the well, same just, strain. Just, and if you get another one going around, the kind of doing the same thing. And this uh, virus can also mutate. Right. Well, yeah. And I guess that's part of the reason why they're talking about being reinfected is it might be mutating faster than you can hope to deal with it. Well, and, and I don't know if we've mentioned this on cast before, but I've certainly talked about it enough with my wife where, you know, what if this thing pivots so that it targets the young, not the old? Mm-hmm. Trust me, it'll be a whole different scenario instantaneously if people feel like their kids are at risk. Yeah, we're hoping for the best here uh, on this, but it has the recipe to become mm, grim. Yeah. So, I mean, hope everybody out there is staying as safe as they can. (laughs) I I hope you are digesting information that is uh, beneficial to you and your family. (laughs) Like us, us just making stuff up. (laughs) I certainly hope you are resisting uh the temptation to be a tough guy about it and go out in the world if you don't have to uh certainly i the aerosol the lingering aerosol version of this is one of the most concerning things and 
that the fact that it can just be in in enclosed spaces for a reasonably long period of time so that the whole embracing of social distancing like every store that we go to on our one day a week where we have to go here they've got these like line check stops set up where you're only six feet away from somebody the thing is about this virus if somebody coughs six feet in front of you and then you step into their space you're not safe yeah like like obviously it's safer than everybody like coughing into each other's face on purpose but one of the other things i've seen in early research from a friend of mine um, who's kind of like front line on this on the research side is that viral loads up front really matter so if your encounter with it is a minute amount then your body has much greater chance of uh fighting it off before it gets overwhelmed mm-hmm. um because the thing a lot of the people that are dying in hospitals seem to be dying from something called like a, i think it's called a cytokine storm or something and it's basically like an overreaction of your immune system that starts uh putting you in mortal danger and that comes from probably and is the end result of being exposed to a large viral load like the equivalent of somebody coughing right in your face mm-hmm. taking it in the eyes the nose and the mouth all at the same time well, um, a lot of this stuff kills you not because it kills you but because of your immune system reaction right that's the way i understand is it. like essentially it's your, your immune system killing you and it's just that this virus or whatever it is and then it's not just covid it's lots of stuff is cause the overreaction basically yeah, my friend is working on like one of the solutions they've been they've got into early testing is something that's looking at suppressing that immune response as opposed to killing the virus itself. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. trying to let it burn burn through you in a more controlled fashion. Okay, I mean that's what allergies is. Allergies is your immune system overreacting to a stimulus, and it's not that it's not cat fur that makes me sneeze like a madman. It's my immune system going all five alarm fire because of a couple cat danders, which are otherwise harmless. Yeah. So anyway, um, hope everybody's staying safe and <laughs> planning ahead. I think people have been asking me again all week, like what what they should be doing about magic. And I said, well, first of all, I wouldn't think too hard about magic. Uh, think harder about food sources and coverage of bill payments and access to healthcare. And if you might need to pivot to a completely different career path, which I think for a lot of people is not all that crazy um you know if you were a retail employee and you've just been sent home and there's no chance that store is opening anytime soon you need to start thinking about what you might be able to do from the comfort of your home that the economy will still actually support i don't i don't i don't know what the answer to that is yet um are you trying to convince all of our listeners to become cam girls james because there's got to be an upper bounds of how much society can support that (laughs) i mean i wasn't thinking that but now that you mention it uh, a lot of people being stuck at home uh, with relatively minimal disposable income, but also relatively minimal expense profiles, depending on what your situation is. Um, a lot of time for jerking off, a lot of sex workers that might have an opportunity, I suppose, from a relatively safe environment, safer than they, they often do. So who knows? The- oh, I'm sure there's a lot of that. Uh, a lot of business opportunities out there for enterprising individuals. Yeah. We'll see. There's First, we need to... I mean, universal basic income seems to be, be a big topic of conversation coming into this. Spain has announced, I think, that they're moving forward with plans to attempt to implement it. 
Canada more or less is on a temporary basis. Like the website opened April 4th or 5th or something, like whatever Monday was, the 5th, 4th, 6th, 6th. Uh, here in Canada for people to get their like $2,000 a month. Plus if you have kids, you get an additional bonus on your baby bonus that you usually get, which is just money you get from the government every month for having kids. Um, and then there's some other like business related programs as well. And they're only being asserted or like confirmed on a month by month basis because they, no one knows when this will end. But I think that the conversation around universal basic income is likely to get a lot more interesting as this continues. And we see how in times of great crisis, it could be extremely useful for keeping the train on the rails. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be the worst way to achieve the best thing, essentially. Even conservative think tanks, by my reckoning, are coming, have been coming around to the idea because... <laughs> one of the ways you make sure that the gap stays between the rich and the poor is that the poor have just enough to not be willing to revolt. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, d- yeah. the darker sides, I think, of UBI is that if the entire planet switches to UBI, they're going that the control mechanisms, if you put your tinfoil hat on, do actually get stronger. Like from an authoritarian perspective, you have more control over a population that has their basic necessities. They have a roof over their head. They have clothes. They have access to sexual partners. They have food. They have entertainment vis-a-vis phone and internet. And, you know, some people may opt out of the economy along those lines. But you can set up, like, you can set up programs that incent uh, greater contribution while still making sure that, you know, the people that are getting UBI, most of their money is going back to the super rich anyway because they're just paying into the program. You know, they're ordering their food on Amazon, they're paying the cell phone company, they're buying clothes from Nike, et cetera, and the money just flows back upstream. And that is exactly yeah. what the 1% are interested in establishing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's true. Like, does, you know, does the application of UBI make it more difficult for political unrest to take hold? Uh, yeah, develop in industrialized countries that would be that'd be an interesting type of conversation it's not something i've given much thought to uh you know i'm definitely a ubi supporter but i haven't considered it in that light but hardly seems the best this hardly seems like the best venue for that discussion uh although an interesting one at that maybe we can get down to talk about it um in the meantime I do, let's try and turn the i, I do have a final hmm. point for that that won't be labor that's okay. it's a two-pronged thing right the control vis-a-vis people having just enough is half of it. The other half is that in the modern era, post 9-11 especially, we have now made it impossible for ever anyone to even be a revolutionary. You can be a terrorist, but the glorified revolutionaries of the like 20s through the 60s just don't, basically don't exist anymore. So, well, yeah. And and the, the, the ease of control vis-a-vis technology and being able to pinpoint activity, locate humans by their cell phone location, et cetera, makes it real hard to overthrow a government in any meaningful way anyway. Uh, Yeah. You know, I tend to um, mock um, sort of gun nuts and people who hoard, you know, their own militia that are 
just itching for a chance to turn their firearms on the population and leftists and, and what have you. Um, you know, and they always revert to this argument that their firearms are for, you know, protection. And, you know, the first thing that a whatever fascist government wants to do is take your guns away. And, you know, this way I can fight them off and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, uh, yeah, that might have been true in the 19th century when the difference between a soldier and a guy with a gun in his house was pretty negligible. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't care how many guns you own. Like, have you heard of drones? Yeah. Well, like, that's just that's like, like there's no right, way. The, the, the bigger I mean, your compound is, and the more guns there are in it, the greater the likelihood they'll just do the math and figure out they can strike you from the air once and deal with the problem. Right. Yeah. And you know, there's no way that you know, a guy with a couple, even you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment in his house is going to be able to do anything about the U.S. government wanting to not have to deal with him because they have the tools that you can't hope to have. So yeah, the dream of maybe I can fight this crazy government off is keep dreaming, man. Yeah, so it's, it's certainly surreal to be talking about collectibles <laughs> as content <clears throat> because on the one hand, there's so much more going on in the world right now that is at, at a higher level of importance. But on the other hand, we're all stuck at home looking for things to do. And content about what you can do at home actually does have some value. Um, yeah. And and Magic Card, I, I just wish I was stuck at home, like in quarantine with my brother or something. Like my wife isn't is into gaming on various fronts, but has never like Magic has never caught fire for her. So I got all these Magic cards and nobody to play with them with. And I suppose I, mm-hmm. I could easily hook up my webcam and do it. Like we're playing D and D on Saturday nights over the internet. I could certainly be playing with our members if i really wanted to but i'm not quite that desperate yet yeah there's a bunch of groups that are doing that type of thing you know the D on the zoom and what have you uh and i i i have i'm not i don't play D, so i haven't gotten into that um and we don't have any activities that really blend themselves to that but i mean we're in discord every night playing games uh chatting and that type of thing um but i I know what you mean it is it is a bummer like who you you know where you ended up in quarantine and who you're with and like you know we're both with our you know wife and significant other so like it's great you're happy to have this person here but you're like man it would have been nice if i had like two or three other people here with me so we could have had a little more of a robust social interaction going on this whole time definitely not complaining like ellie's hot and she just made a like foot tall carrot cake so (laughs) Um, there are plenty of benefits, but yeah, the game from the gaming perspective, uh, a little weak so far. Yeah. Yeah. We were, you know, we were trying to figure out like, uh, oh, when are we going to be able to do this? Like maybe we can, you know, once everyone's been in quarantine for a week or so, two weeks, we can kind of get together and, you know, we're all being good. So we know we're okay. But you know, the more that we talk, you know, the more that we learned about all this, the more it was kind of like, uh, never mind. Like, uh, this will kill me if I get it. I can't risk it. Yeah, it, so. it's also good if you get along with your significant other and like you have some kind of a, a dialogue, like <laughs> things to talk about pretty important these days. Yeah, Will be. although she, I did get a new computer or a board game um, and uh, my wife was pissed that I didn't want to play the two player version with her. <laughs> like, I don't like two player board. I don't like two player board games. What do you want from me? There, there is a really good one, but I don't even know if you can order it. It's out of print. There's a there's a head to head. Lord of the Rings game. I tracked down the name of it. That's probably one of the best games I've ever played. And certainly one of the best two-player games. 
because it has that like replayability of your early teenage years where it's something you could play like a couple hundred times and it would only get more interesting because you're trying to like think five steps ahead of the other person based on what they've done in past games and there's a limited, okay. limited set of options basically it's like it's a weird diamond shaped map and the good guys have to get have all their players hidden and they have to get frodo to drop off the ring in mordor and the bad guys are just pushing bad guys forward through the map trying to kill all the key characters and when the characters meet in the same territory you reveal them and then they fight but the fight is modified based on cards you have in hand and the majority of your cards are numbered and so the and the characters are numbered so for instance a character might be a three and my character is a five so you play a three out of your hand betting that thinking that you want to win the fight but you'd rather use the, the smallest card possible because you're saving your good ones for later it's a lot of play to it um and it's been out of print for a while but yeah, I agree. They're good two-player games are tough. Those out-of-print board games, you can usually grab them on eBay, but they're exorbitantly expensive, and they can go years and years and years and years without a reprint if they ever even get one. Uh, that's tough. I know it's Star Wars. Oh, I think it's Rebel Assault is supposed to be essentially the pinnacle of two-player board gaming. And I might be wrong in calling it Rebel Assault. That might be the... Uh, not Mansions of Madness, but the other one, uh, a, a reskin of another game, sort of in the Gloomhaven school. But in any case, it's like this really complex two-player Star Wars board game that's supposed to be quite good, but it's like four or five hours. You know, there's also the imbalance thing, right? Like if you're like me, you've been playing video games your entire life. You've been playing a lot of board games. Like you're a gamer. You think about it when you're not playing. And like my wife enjoys all of it, but she's never been into it like we have. So there can be at times an imbalance of experience that just kind of ruins the whole thing for both parties. It's the same way in that playing, you know, some computer game that you played for five years and a friend just buys it like... Or magic, right? Like you know how to play magic. Like, you know that you you can play at a virtually competitive level, or 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 truly competitive level, and you're trying to teach your friend or significant other how to play it, and they're like, "Look, my elf is cool," and you're like, Ugh. "Like it takes so long to get you up to the point where this is fun." One of the things I think is funny about teaching people magic is that I find everybody always wants to win. Like, they're they're really upset if they get beat. And it's, it's like, you don't understand like the curve on this game. <laughs> someone who, there's no comparison between someone who started today and someone who started 20 years ago, because I gave you a deck to play with. It's, you haven't even started building your own decks yet. And just trying to impart upon somebody like, you don't need to win here. You just, this is just a learning experience. And it's probably a learning experience for weeks before you should even care about winning. And but but a large right. portion of this of society is all about the winning and just is turned off by any game they can't that where an experience or skill gap causes uh, an obvious uh, gap between their ability what they would like to do and what will actually happen. Well, what they want is uh, to you know show that even though I'm new at this, I have this innate talent for it. <laughs> can still beat you Mm -hmm. you know like i'm actually going to be very good at this and you're not going to have seen it coming and and it's like uh uh-huh well okay yeah i'm sure none of us thought that when we were new to this game either (laughs) um reminds me of playing smash brothers in college we had an entire unit club at our university dedicated to just smash brothers and it was melee was the one that was popular while i was there 
And uh, I mean, we'd have, you know, Wednesday nights we'd play and the student union would get upwards sometimes of like 60 or 70 people would show up to play across a variety of TVs. And you'd get people who would wander through who who would play in their dorm rooms. And, you, you know, if, if not every week, every couple of weeks, you'd get someone who come through and be like, oh, you know, I, I've never been here, but. You know, I'm I'm really good. You know, I'm really good. And we're like, okay, well, you know, why don't you why don't you play a game? And they're like, well, I'm really good. Like, you know, I can beat all my friends, and I beat the level nine CPUs. And we're like, mm-hmm, okay, go ahead and have a seat with this guy. He's you know, you know, top thirty in the club. And then they just get like <laughs> absolutely demolished. And you're like, there is a bit of a learning curve on this stuff. Um, the other thing that everyone should remember is that I'm glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with all of you. Uh, we are, in fact, talking about Magic the Gathering this week, and our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby and join in all sorts of end-of-the-world Mad Max discussions. Yep. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Might be a good time to throw in an order there and get some board games in the house, because who knows how long they're going to be shipping for, and who knows how long uh, you're going to be stuck. So... Board, good yeah. board games are probably a pretty good investment if you got some people to play with. Uh, yeah, I, and uh, I will reiterate, if you uh, want input, you can always hit me up on Twitter. I, I'm not as experienced with uh, with board games as a lot of other people out there, but I like to think that I have a good feel for good introductory medium weight games, that type of thing. So if you want, reach out and I can give you a chat about that. Um, but let me hop into our... Uh, our four segments this week actually really it's is it six i mean yeah, it's four it's four segments four segments this. but we're handling paper and magic online this week because there's action in both we've never had like segment two and segment two b though i mean i feel like if i if very fancy I, i'm gonna call this six segments right where i'm stay i'm putting <laughs> the stake in the ground this is a six okay. segment episode it's also 9 56 p.m uh, it's just about 10 o'clock and I, if we hit 1230, I'm going to bed, right? So this has got to be six segments in under two and a half hours. Um, segment one, our MTGO metagame we can review. We have both a, uh, we have a modern MTGO super qualifier. Why is it super and what does it qualify you for? I couldn't tell you. And also the pioneer players tour qualifier, which I assume qualifies you for the players tour, um, but also could not tell you, and I challenge anyone out there to do otherwise. Segment two, our top paper movers with a load of Ikoria and Ikoria Commander 2020 spoilers. There seems to be some disagreement about the product name. Uh, paper cards did move this week, despite the fact that you're mostly only playing with the person who shares your bed. Um, segment three... 2B or 3, top MTGO movers, a couple cards on Moto that had a, a good jump in price this week. Segment 4, our topic of the week, we have both the Ikoria and Commander 2020 spoilers. We'll hit on a couple of our favorites, um, which I'm sure we'll, you know, you'll also hear us discuss elsewhere throughout the episode. And we'll have Dan Fournier on next week, I believe, hopefully, to discuss uh, Ikoria more in depth. 
Segment five, our MTGO cards to watch. Hopefully it should be a quick one. And then segment six, our paper cards to watch. So all sorts of excitement there. Um, James, why don't you do us the honor of getting us kicked off here? So for segment one, we're going to be looking at the Magic Online metagame week in review. Of course, there are no major tournaments going on in paper these days. So pretty much all the action has shifted to online for standard. It seems to be kind of split between uh, Arena and uh, MTGO with kind of a uh, bias towards Arena because that seems to be where Wizards wants people to be following the path to greatness, as it were. Um, but of course, for Modern and Pioneer, the action and Legacy and EDH and Vintage, all the action is still on Magic Online. So there was two, uh, there's tons of tournaments going on, but the largest two, as far as I could figure it, was the Modern uh, Super Qualifier and the Pioneer Players Tour Qualifier, which I think, if you believe the name, uh, qualifies you for whatever version of the Pro Tour is going to go on, presumably online, <laughs> later this year, uh, whenever they sort out the details on that. I don't know if they have already. It's was already confusing before all this went down, so I've completely out of touch with the pro scene at this point. However, this was a pretty interesting result. The number one deck in both tournaments, Pioneer and Modern, was five-color Niv-Mizzet. Just taken over. In the Modern Super Qualifier, the deck was two Teferi Time Raveler, four Renin Six, three Niv-Mizzet Reborn, three Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath, Three Bring Delight, two Glittering Wish, Supreme Verdict, three Thoughtseize, one Unmoored Ego, three Assassin's Trophy, three Kaya's Guile, three Lightning Helix, and four Arkham's Astrolab. That looks like a tight list. Like those are number those numbers of various cards seem very specifically chosen. I mean, I like I I'll, I'll buy it, but I think all Niv Mizzet decks are gonna look. Like they're tuned, right? They're gonna be like, "Wow, yeah, this guy was really in on the numbers for for his visit deck." But really, it's just a matter of like of, of that. All all the decks are gonna have numbers that look like that. Well, I, I'm not really commenting on the fact that they're not all fours. It's more that this deck in particular, like, it could have run four to fairies, but it's running two, but four running six, three euro, not two or four. And I saw, looking over other versions of the list, they all look very, very tight. Like, it seems like in modern, people have said, at least for now, this is what this list mostly looks like. More options than most people, and mm-hmm. it's probably very easy to misbuild the deck because of that. Now, over in Pioneer, that version has a lot of similar cards, uh, but a different build overall. One Nahiri, the Harbinger here. Four Teferi instead of the two in modern. One Blood Baron of Viscopa. Pretty sure that's the first time I've seen that alongside Niv. Two Gilded Goose. One Hostage Taker. Four Niv Mizzet. Four Sylvan Carry Added. That's not in the modern version. Three Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath. Four Bring Delight. One Dread Boar. One Hour of Devastation. One Slaughter Games. One Thought Seize. Three Abrupt Decay. And one Anguished Unmaking. And 28 lands. Okay. Plenty so, of action I there, mean, too. If we were in a paper world... With lots of paper tournaments going on, uh, and we were supposed to have a bunch of modern ones that got canceled, uh, I could see Niv-Mizzet Reborn foils that were called a couple times on this cast really doing some work. <coughs> yeah, <coughs> which we've definitely talked about before too, right? Like, I completely agree that Niv-Mizzet had the, has had the opportunity of being a good pick, uh, but it just kind of 
hasn't worked out as well for him as it could have, uh, given the current uh, health climate. I'm not even sure what foils are going for on TCG right now. And there's also a little bit of a, like, it's an, if you're the kind of person that tends to check TCG for prices, you got to keep in mind that the TCG direct stores are offline. And the people that, and a lot of other people have mm. taken their uh, inventories offline just because they don't want to deal with either potential fraud or post uh, issues. Um, we've got multiple members who are basically just not selling right now because they only sell on TCG Player. Um, so it's hard to say, like when I'm looking, my go-to for years has been how many listings of and how many copies of a near mint version of a card are present in the TCG player marketplace. And currently with a lot of the inventory taken down, it's hard to tell when I'm looking at something, whether that's representative of the inventory actually selling out or they're, you know, 40% of it wasn't present to begin with. Yeah, I actually, you know, the cards that I'm looking at this week, definitely I'm operating on the assumption that they're more available than they possibly look like. Um, or I should say I'm operating on the assumption that what's available is what you have to contend with. So if there is a significant amount of supply out there that I have not accommodated for, um, well, I suppose that's just another thing to be aware of. I'm very curious. I'm looking up Niv Mizzet Reborn Foils right now. I want to see if like winning two different formats at once, major tournaments, has moved the needle much on the foils, which were already in motion. I mean, it's not that it didn't work out. It's just been you know, chipping away at that inventory. There's 25 listings currently. Right. Uh, Priority Games has 14 copies at 1733, uh, pro- providing the only meaningful barrier. And then it starts up the ramp pretty tightly. I, I would imagine we'd be hitting... 35 to 40 on these real shortly here. Um, This is a foil mythic from the last set to have a low foil drop rate. So uh, sooner or later, the spec will get there. You'll get there. Yeah. If it's, if yeah. And I, and maybe it'll take an extra year and a half, uh, but I agree that it's eventually, I mean, I think they were originally called at 10 bucks or something. So we're, we're already closing in on a double up. I'm pretty interested to see where all of this goes, especially with the Ikoria spoilers. I know that there's that one black and white creature whose name escapes me at the moment. Lupus or something like that. Luxus. Luris. There we go. Who is, yeah, is going to have some impacts across the board, I think, in both Pioneer and Modern. Um, So we should get some pretty good shakeups once that hits the tables. Yeah. Or the virtual tables, perhaps. I flagged at least six or seven constructed playable cards that like look like they're going to have an impact here. And I suspect, given the complexity of this set, there are several others hiding in the shadows that haven't really been properly parsed yet. Mm-hmm. So looking at... And uh, it'll, be, it'll be cool to see where all that goes. Looking at the rest of the super qualifier lists, uh, in the modern result, of course, Nimizit first, there was a Humans deck in second. Humans making a bit of a resurgence, it would seem. Seen a few, several of those doing well lately. Uh, Emery Urza in third. Uh, fourth place is Green Tron. Fifth place, Emery Urza. Uh, sixth place is this green rec- red deck that is existing more or less in an online vacuum. I don't think this deck has ever had a chance to shine in paper yet. Um, this is the one that is basically a Ponza brew. 
two Chandra Torch of Defiance, four Arbor Elf, four Bloodbraid Elf, two Brone Crusher Giant, four Glorybringer, three Clothis God of Destiny, uh, a card to watch as we'll talk about shortly, four Magus of the Moon, sold those online last week as a result uh, for a very nice profit, two Scavenging Ooze, four Season Pyrancer, three Pillage, four Lightning Bolt, and four Utopia Sprawl. Um, and we talked about this last week about how when Ponzadex have shown up in the past, it's been kind of a one-off and then you don't see it again for a few months. But lately, the green-red deck has been doing a ton of work uh, online and is a reasonable chunk of the metagame at this point. So definitely something you have to prepare about, prepare for. Yeah. And w- members in our Discord that were talking about what they're playing on Magic Online were complaining about how they Meh, can't play Tron because this deck's doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, right. Like it's pretty kind of nice to have a, a, a Tron predator floating around yeah, out there. Exactly. I, uh, I, I'm a big fan of, of these style decks, at least from a player's perspective. I love to see Utopia sprawl out there. That's the good stuff. Um, I, I still remain unconvinced that it's good enough for the most part, but you know, this is now two weeks in a row that we've been talking about virtually the same deck, which, uh, is is good news. It's good news for that strategy that it's managing to make it week, two weeks in a row with good placement and at a, at a legitimate event too, not just you know a five zero. Yeah, and then you've got Emery Urza again in seventh and Dredge in eighth, featuring two copies of Ox of Aganas, um, and then over in Pioneer, the rest of the loadout was uh, another like a green ramp deck in second that also featured uh splash for Uros. Yeah, that looks like about right. And mono black uh, with four castle Lockthwain, of course, in third black, not dead there. Green black. This is the one with like rotting regisaurs, the mid range uh, one that runs great hinge and collected company in fourth. Fifth place was a, Green blue Merfolk deck using Brazen Borrowers, Gadric the Wizen, four Master Ways, four Merfolk Trickster, four Risen Reef, one Thassa's Oracle, one Tide Binder Mage, and three Omen of the Sea with a bunch of counter spells. Uh, sixth place was uh, Blue White Planeswalkers with nine of them Gideons, Elspeths, Narsets, and Teferis galore. Uh, There's seven- your Dream Trawler. Yep. Seventh place was Mono Red, and eighth place was uh, Inverter, Thassa's Oracle, etc. Interesting to see that that deck is, you know, people thought it was busted. People were calling for a ban in Pioneer for this pretty early on, and the deck just, stats haven't borne it out. Uh, Wizards has passed on doing anything about it. It shows up in top eights pretty consistently, but doesn't seem to be overwhelming the format. Might be a, a decent place to be stashing some money if people were playing more paper. Yeah, uh, kind of a bummer that they're not in some context. Um, I, 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 I thought that the desire to have it banned was sort of misplaced. It doesn't seem like you know it was good, but it wasn't that good. Uh, but I do think, you know, I do think that it's going to be a part of the format for a while now. I don't think that this is going anywhere. Yeah. All right. So, you know, Modern and Pioneer looking not nothing too uh, unusual going on there. No breakout new decks other than the Green Red Ponza and Niv Mezit doing so well. 
So we can move on over here to segment two if you want to start us off. Okay. Uh, first card out of the list this week is Jin Yangyu. Zhang Yangyu. God, I am doing such a bad job with this. Jin Yangyu. Zhang Yangyu. Wildcrafter. This is the... Uh, I feel comfortable saying Chinese-inspired Planeswalker... Yeah, because um, it was originally, spark. the character originally showed up in a China-only Planeswalker deck release. Yeah, okay. I was pretty sure about that, that that's where he came from. Uh, this is the three-mana Planeswalker, green Planeswalker. Uh, each creature you control the 1-1 counter is a bird's paradise, and he puts 1-1 counters on your creatures. This is an uncommon, but we're seeing the secret layer version from 25 to 30, so a bit of a jump, like 5 bucks, 20%. Not the hugest deal, but this is on the back of the Ozolith, that one mana artifact out of Ikoria that moves counters around when creatures die and puts them back on them afterwards. So people are thinking, you know, we're not seeing all the copies go here. This is just the, like, the most premium version of Zhang Yangu. Um because he's, you know, he generates the counters, but it's it's a nice little synergy there for the card, no doubt. I suspect there's a little bit of texture to this discussion. I I have a feeling that Zhang was already draining out, and Ozolith gave it a little punt this morning, because as far as I can tell, of course the the stained glass planeswalkers were distributed vis-a-vis the secret layer drops and the only one that i think this was associated with was the stargazer volume five which is the one for nylea which may have been one that was uh lesser ordered because there wasn't uh um the card the nylea card is not one that people are chasing super hard necessarily and any of the the stained glass planeswalkers that are have only shown up in one of the releases are going to be uh, significantly less populous, and um, a lot of the second wave of that has not landed because it's stuck in the warehouse, the third party warehouse that Wizards was probably using, which is almost certainly shut down um, for the time being, and so it could be weeks or months before people get their hands on the additional inventory. And in the absence of that inventory, it's pretty easy for a card like this that had that one release point to just disappear. There are basically none of these left in North America. So uh, it's one of my pick for, for all of those reasons, it's one of my picks today. Um, if you can track these down anywhere in the 25 to $30 range, I think that they are totally fine especially if it's for personal use i see no reason to be holding off because even when that other inventory releases down the road it'll be releasing into a demand hole because there's just none left so it will probably get gobbled up relatively quickly Um, there's none none available that you can see uh tcg player yeah well and there may be and there may be copies hiding in tcg direct there may also be copies at uh, vendors that are not shipping, but even some of the vendors like CK, where you can order but they won't ship, are sold out. Mm. Which which is nice. Which, which suggests or, that people certainly. are people are like, I want this, and I'd rather lock it down now and get it in whenever, for yeah. for when I can actually leave the house. Um, and that's that's one of the interesting, I think, decision inflection points that is going to for people that are not financially. Uh, are not in financial trouble because of this whole crisis, whose jobs are either essential services where they're going to keep getting a paycheck no matter what, or um, have significant savings um, or 
relatively live by relatively modest means and can survive with especially if they're in countries like Canada where we're getting you know everybody is pretty much has access to free money from the government um, the decision to go ahead and buy something you can't get your hands on just because you're bored that night is probably one that's going to get made like I think I mean I always found that Americans are because of the Amazon pattern of behavior have an expectation to get things shipped to them in two, three, four days. In other countries, it's much more normal to wait 5, 10, 15, whatever. And right now, our expectations are getting reset, <laughs> where everyone's like, I own this in theory. I just may never see it. Like, There's <laughs> going to be a lot of things being ordered that are going to be essentially Kickstarter projects. <laughs> mm. it, yeah, it used to be. You know, you used to wait a week, if not more, for products, but Prime really warped that discussion. I'll say that. Yeah. Reset people. So anyway, kind of change how people expected that. So Jiang uh, Yang Yu is a solid uh, card in, say, Atraxa counters. I think it's the kind of card in the hot, in the most tuned versions of the deck that could easily get cut. But um, it's also has some funky things you can do with Ozolith, right? Because you can, anything that's moving counters around becomes something that can, can do fun things, especially because uh, cards like doubling season, of course, affect all permanents. So these planeswalkers from war that can only count down might come in with doubled counters, and then you can do a lot more with them. Um, so anyway, uh, I picked up a couple of these today. I think they're a solid pick just on the basis of being essentially sold out. And I could see them going like 25 to 40, uh, assuming you can never get your hands on them, because who knows when my inventory will actually land. Uh, and that is definitely going to be one of the trickier things here is that the usual modus operandi for MGG finance types, where ideally you are trying to flip into the hype, current hype cycle real quick, not going to work so well necessarily, depending on who's shipping to you and from where. Um, whereas holding inventory seems to be working out okay. Like my sales are way down from what they would normally be, but Ikoria still sold a bunch of cards for me this week. Yeah, yeah, me too. Some of them went. And I, I I suspect here, and you know, we're kind of bleeding into some of our discussions, I think, down the road, but I, uh, I suspect that we're going to get our boost, a little bit of a boost now. It's going to be less of a boost than we would have gotten otherwise from Ikoria and the Commander product, but I think it's going to be much shorter than it would have been otherwise. Um, and I don't think, yeah, and I don't think it will last. Like, we're going to get to sell some of these cards, and, like, instead of being a couple weeks, it'll be, you know, a week. A week and a half, and then it'll be gone. Like, that, that you won't be able, to, you won't still be selling your product at that point. Yeah. The, the bottom line is stuff that you're going to have to hold for a long time just has massive question marks around it, so you have to be comfortable with that, that uncertainty and risk. Uh, and the period and the long hold period. Like I'm just basically telling our members constantly that whatever we're talking about before you pull the trigger on something, just expect that you might have to hold it for six to 12 months. Um, all right. So try to blow through this list of paper top movers here. Pemmin's Aura at a Scourge. A bunch of Scourge cards on the list. Non-foils going from four to 650, 62% or so. That's the kind of like movement that it's hard to make money on, but it's also a flag that if you're holding Pemmin's Aura, and you may be if you're from that era, um have a couple in sitting around uh this might be the week you get to unload them for eight to ten bucks wouldn't surprise me um this is on the back of zazara the exemplary 
uh, goes infinite with this card because that's the new Hydra Commander that taps for two mana. So any enchantment that gives her an ability to untap for one mana and then Pemanzora does it for one blue lets her make infinite mana. Which is nifty. I had, can I just say, I had uh, Pemmins Aura deck when I played casually, and it was quite cool. I used Pemmins Aura, and uh, you would put it on Prodigal Sorcerer, the blue, or um, or with, there was an enchantment that turned a creature into a Prodigal Sorcerer, and you would just ping for one blue, and it was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, Skullbriar, the Walking Grave, uh, is one of the looking like one of the more nasty things you can do with the Ozolith. Um, the Ozolith was a one-mana artifact revealed today, uh, if you haven't heard about it. Basically what it does is two things. One, uh, whenever a creature leaves play that has counters on it of any kind, those counters can be shifted to the Ozolith. Uh, and the second thing it does is at the start of your combat, you can move all of the counters onto a creature. Now, you can't selectively move which counters you move. So if you have a combination of negative and positive counters, then you have to put all of them on whatever you're targeting. But with that second trigger, you can target an opponent's creature. So if you have somehow removed negative counters from your creature on your turn, you can shift those negative, say, minus one, minus one counters over to your opponent's creatures. And the interactions between this card and Commander with things like Doubling Season and Hardened Scales are just crazy nasty. Like, you put in a creature and, say, whatever attracts the counters, for instance, but there's tons of plus one, plus one counter or counter-carrying Commanders already, not just Atraxa. Um, so you put in something with counters on it, whatever, Spike Feeder. You sack Spike Feeder for four life. Those uh, Actually, I guess it doesn't work with Spike Feeder because you got to take the counters off to activate the ability. But something else that's got counters on it, when it dies, the counters will transfer over to... Uh, the Ozolith, but if you have doubling season in play, it will get twice as many counters. So then during the next combat, presumably you've got some other creature and you're going to put, if it was two counters, now you're putting four counters on that creature. And then when it dies, doubling season would put eight plus counters because who knows how many counters were on that second creature back onto the Ozolith. The thing only costs one mana. It's the poster child for open-ended synergy. There are so many different things you can do with this card. I think Ben Blyweiss from Star City posted like 40 things to do with Ozolith this morning. And it was probably the tip, <laughs> of, the, tip of the iceberg on Twitter. Um, so Skullbriar is interesting because this is the green-black commander card, which is also relevant potentially in Legacy here, where uh, it's a 1-1 one, one haste. And when it deals damage to a player, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. But its other ability is that if it leaves play... Um, and goes to another zone other than I think your library or your hand, if I'm not mistaken, it keeps all of its counters. So say you put it in, attack for one in Legacy, it gets a counter, it's a 2-2, they kill it with swords or whatever, then you put two counters on the Ozolith, and then you bring it back, or you put another one into play, then you can transfer the counters off the Ozolith onto it, and when it when it went to the graveyard it keeps the counters. So if it had, say, three counter, two counters on it when it went to the graveyard, it's a 3-3. Three, three. It's going to come back as a 3-3. Three, three. And then you get to put another three counters from the Ozolith on it, and it's attacking for six. And this card... Does. And this card has only come out in two places, a commander, an older commander set and uh, commander anthology. So it dried up pretty much everywhere in North America. Like, you can't find... 
sub $10 skull briars pretty much anywhere. Over in Europe, I, I think you can still get them in the like $5 to $7 range, but I suspect that they will drain out as well. And this will be an interesting uh, litmus test because this could easily not be good enough for Legacy. I was talking to Fournier about it earlier and he thinks it's trash. So take that for what you will. Um, but I saw other pros posting that they were buying their play sets to fool around with. Um, hmm. And even if it's trash for Legacy, it's not trash for Commander. Skullbriar gets better with Ozolith, that's for sure. And o- Skullbriar fits into Atraxa Canders and a bunch of the other uh, Canders decks that include green black cards. So Skullbriar could probably hold the plateau at 10 plus here. Yeah, I mean, you've got an older commander here because he was printed originally quite a while ago now. It was... I think 2011. 2011 was oh, his wow. first printing. Yeah. So, you know, he was only... The Commander Anthology is the only other printing. So, you know, he, there's not a lot of copies out there. Commander 2011 is not 10 years ago, right? Not nine years ago because of the way they number these. Uh these are numbered correctly. Corsets are not. He's been around for a long time. Um, so, you know, I would, there's probably not as much liquid inventory out there. They weren't printing commander decks as heavily back then as they are now. Uh, people weren't buying as many of them. There's just so there's just less of that supply in the market. Yeah. So then there's a bunch of cards on the list that are paper cycling cards that jumped because of the Jeskai cycling commander. Uh, the commander in question is... Bring her up. Uh, Gavi Nestwarren. This is Warden. Uh, two Jeskai, two five, legendary creature, human shaman. You may pay zero rather than pay the cycling cost of the first card you cycle each turn. So basically, the first thing you try to cycle, you cycle for free. So of course, the most expensive cyclers are pretty sexy in that scenario. Whenever you draw your second card each turn, which presumably is from cycling, you create a two two red and white dinosaur cat creature token as a bonus. So you're building. It's a token army of two twos, which is you know, certainly relevant because a lot of token creators create one ones, getting double the value. And the fact that you're you know that you're going to be able to get off a cycle and get a two two every turn once this hits the board uh, is pretty good. Um, I know you didn't think much of it, but a bunch of cards moved. Firestorm from Weatherlight moving from five to nine dollars. Uh, we have Decree of Silence from moving from four to ten. I certainly sold plenty of those this week. Uh, that I picked up at like a dollar in 2017. Decree of Annihilation from Scourge moving from two to ten dollars. Uh, Jason Alt on our team was flagging that earlier this week. Um, the FTV Annihilation foils are also up 100. percent And then Decree of uh, Silence foils moved from 12 to 60 uh, for almost 400 percent gains. If you believe somebody is actually buying them at that price. Uh, yeah, the. Gavi just does not do it for me. I think the whole cycling thing is kind of uninteresting. Uh, and I mean, maybe I will be proven wrong by people who come to really enjoy her as a commander. But I think that's going to be one of those mechanics that looks, sounds cool in concept. And then you play the commander and you're, you start trying to build the deck and you realize that you're trying to combine the payoffs for cycling of which they're probably of which are there's definitely cool payoffs for cycling but you're there's not that many of them um but then you also have to have the cycling cards in your deck and if you're trying to make sure that your cycling cards are actually cool and doing a lot for you 
and and being fun, you start to run out of room for the enablers. And then if you have the enablers, you don't have enough room for the cycling cards. And it just seems like you're going to find yourself without the, the deck's just not going to be that exciting. I think is what it's going to come down to. I'm not saying it's bad or that it's inefficient. It just seems like it won't be that cool. Um, so I'm very hesitant on anything other than the most obvious and easy Gabby spikes. I don't expect that to be a long-term performer. I don't know. I, I, I probably put it in the top five potential commanders here, but it doesn't, it doesn't really ring my bell, but I can certainly understand how the, uh, availability of a bunch of cycling land cycles, like one, two, and maybe three, um, and the presence of a bunch of cyclers that we got during Amonkhet block that were like single mana to cycle, plus all of these free decrees um, suddenly being relevant because you can cycle them for nothing uh, under Gavi. As long as you've got like a Lightning Greaves or whatever on her to protect her and, and a way of reducing her cost, because she starts at five, so cost cast your five and seven then nine you just basically want to make sure you have the card the the commander reduction cards in there to keep her in play i don't know the i mean the, this is certainly the commander that moved the most cardboard so far this week so hard hard to say how much of that is repressed speculation being unleashed versus uh players being interested but you know people weren't buying four copies at a time for me they were buying single copies that seems to suggest to me that the relevant cards are being bought by players who intend to build and play. Oh, well, I have no doubt about that. I'm sure that there are, you know, discount. Yes. You're going to have the people who are, who are buying some of these cards to spec on. Um, and then you're going to have people, you're definitely going to have people who are buying them because they want to play with those cards, right? They're seeing the spoilers. They're excited. They don't think this is going to go on that long. Maybe they're playing with their friends and they're, you know, they live with their roommates. They're playing with them, whatever. I'm sure this is going to sell cards right now. This isn't the week I'm worried about. It's, it's what happens next. All right. So other stuff on the list that moved. Windfall foils out of uh, Iconic Masters, moving from 10 to $20 for a double up, uh, almost certainly on the back of Zyrus the Writhing Storm. This is the 3-5 uh, legendary Snake Leviathan for two-teamer. Flying, whenever an opponent draws a card except the first one they draw in each of their draw steps, create a 1-1 green snake creature token. When it... Ever Zyrus the Writhing Storm deals combat damage to a player, you and that player each draw that many cards. So the first thing that everybody clued into here is that wheel effects are just ridiculous with this card. So not surprising to see Windfall foils moving because any wheel that makes a bunch of people draw a bunch of cards um, could make you 20 snake tokens <laughs> plus. Uh, and that would just be one of the things you're doing that turn. Zyrus is definitely going to trigger... I mean, we're going to see, you know, the, we've got cards to talk about this week regarding Zyrus, both here in the top movers and also some of the picks later on. The card is, it does a lot of things that people want to do in EDH, and I'm gauging my reaction to its utility just on uh, having seen Jason tweet about it. Jason Alt was saying it was his favorite card, and he can't wait to play with it. And it's going to do things EDH players want to do. Um, and you also get rewarded for your players doing very powerful things, which is drawing cards and you get tons of tokens and tokens, tokens are, are good. Um, tokens are very useful in EDH, both as chum blockers. And if you give them death touch, it scares off attackers and so forth. 
so I think Zyrus is going to be behind a lot of action. And at the moment, he's my pick for front runner from the set in terms of, you know, which commander six months out is going to have the most decks from this block. And I'm guessing it's Zyrus. Am I reading it wrong? A wheel does give you sit like, it's not the instance of them drawing card or cards. It's for each card drawn, you get a snake, right? Beyond their, the one in the draw step? Yeah. Whenever an opponent draws a card, except the first one, create one. Yeah, so it's any card. Because right. if you want, there's another card that is worded the other way where you only get the one regardless. Right. Uh, so you just gave, you just gave your opponents 21 cards, but you have 21 snakes. Yes. So it generates a ton for you. Yeah. So you want to have an Eldrazi monument in play. Uh, that would be pretty gross. Yes. Your creatures are indestructible and you sack one snake per turn. It seems totally yes. fine. <laughs> Good enough. All right. So other cards that moved. Unbound Flourishing out of MH1. Foils jumping up to close to 30. Non-foils going from 5 to 10. That's a nice out for people that were holding a bunch of Modern Horizon specs. Zazara the Exemplary is that uh, Hydra, uh, Nightmare Hydra commander. And Unbound Flourishing leans right into that deck because her second ability, of course, is whenever you cast a spell with X in its mana cost, you create a 0-0 green Hydra creature token, then put X plus 1 plus 1 counters on it. And presumably you've got a uh, Ozolith in that deck too because that's going to let you keep doubling up on counters. Mm-hmm. That'll be cool. Unbound Flourishing looked good. Looked like it was like, okay, well, this will probably be good eventually. And it just so happens it was now. Um, so turns out good news if you had those turns out people that went in early on fluctuator on news of Gavi got the whole fuck you MTG finance because (laughs) despite warnings by people in our discord that hey this might get reprinted here um, people went after the Urza Saga copies and drove it up from five to twenty dollars and now it's going to be present in the deck so it's going to get driven right back down thankfully I am not amongst the posse that went after that uh, Solemnity took off because of a few things, uh, from about $1.50 to $6.50, that's from Hour of Devastation, uh, over 300% gains. Uh, Luminous Broodmoth is a pretty busted-looking white card uh, that is present in Ikoria, um, and it basically says... Whenever a creature you control without flying dies, return it to the battlefield under its owner's control with a flying counter on it. So your creatures come back once if they don't have flying and become flying. Okay, well, that's nice. But wouldn't it be nicer if that just happened every time they died? Sure. So let's just have Solemnity in play. Things can't have counters on them. So basically your stuff just keeps coming back forever. Uh, so your creatures can't die. They always come back. So you're getting comes into play abilities, leaves play abilities. You are sacking them for effect and being able to do that infinitely. Probably a pioneer, modern, and commander staple. It's a mythic. It's going to have an extended art. This is going to be a card to target when it gets to lows. Yeah, uh, I definitely like the idea of this whether it will be good enough is another story um but it's certainly going to draw engineers to the table to see if they can come up with anything clever i mean the nice thing about this one is it's a one card combo that just gets better with other pieces it's it's doubling the the life cycle of all of your creatures non-token creatures 
and they come back flying, so they're that much likely, much more likely to finish a game for you. So, so just yeah, the, the, <clears throat> so just Broodmoth plus anything that has comes into play or leaves play abilities is already solid. And if you're if you then add Solemnity into the mix, you might go infinite. Yeah, I mean, yes, for sure. The hard you, you basically can't play this unless you have a four. You have to be able to play a four mana three four flyer. Uh, I think is the, is the problem, or, or I should say, the catch is that you have to be able to support that card and make that card useful without the rules text, um, because you're not always going to get to get a ton of advantage off of it. Now, I can see this most likely ending up in a deck that plays the Broodmoth Solemnity combo. You know, there's an infinite combo in there somewhere, right? Like you have the Broodmoth Solemnity and something else in your deck gives you your infinite combo. But it's otherwise just like a white or white X beatdown deck or some sort of aggressive-ish strategy that then can use a Luminous Broodmoth for card advantage. Right, like okay, I have a bunch of one, two, and three drops that you now have to kill twice uh, because I have Broodmoth going on here, and then uh, sometimes I'll just get the combo you out. In the same way that Green has played uh, decks similar with, um, I guess the latest iteration is probably like Devoted Druid. Right, you had the the like Abzan or Value Town Green White deck that played uh, just a mid range you beat down deck that also just had an infinite combo in it. And I would expect this to go in a similar direction. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. The at minimum, this is a strong Mythic and EDH. I could easily believe it's going to be solid in Standard and Pioneer, and then Modern is is probably more of a combo build since you need to go. You probably want to go off pretty much right away. Um, the other cards on this list, Lightning Rift took off because uh, I think I missed that one. Uh, but the Cycling Commander and then Bounty Hunter at a Tempest. Uh, went from two to nine on the back of the bounty commander that uh, also uses bounty tokens and allows you to mark permanence on the board for death and then get benefit when they die. Yeah, buying bounty hunters was rich. I guess it's reserve list, right? So, I mean, I, I kind of get it. Yeah, I'm not sure how big a deal the bounty hunter commander is going to be. Um, yeah. Sure. I, I mean, th- that, I, that's one of the ones where if I have bounty hunters sitting around and I probably do have a couple, I'm going to slap them up for sale and hopefully get out of them. Yeah, I read it once or twice just to make sure I wasn't missing something. I'm like, this isn't good. So good luck to whoever bought those bounty hunters and thinks they're going to get paid off of that. All right, so moving on to our first ever segment 2B. We did the top movers in paper, which was actually a decent sized list this week. I called it segment three, buddy. Oh. Oh, okay. (laughs) Segment three, uh, top movers on Magic Online. Uh, shorter list for stuff uh, 50% plus. Clothis God of Destiny going from 4 to 6 tickets or so almost 50% gains uh, heavy modern play in both Jund and the green red Ponza deck that we've mentioned a few times um, Temple of Epiphany out of M20 continues to do a lot of work in Teamer and Jeskai builds in standard so it's gone from a dollar nine to about dollar seventy two or 1.09 ticks to 1.72 ticks, I should say. 58% gains. Cinder Vines is a two of in green red sideboards in modern. So it's gone from two ticks to almost four ticks for about 70% gains. Uh, Leyline of Combustion has been seeing sideboard play in standard decks, uh, gone from 0.44 to 0.76 ticks. In paper, this is the kind of thing I want to be a million miles away from, but I'm totally fine having 100 copies of something and getting 70% gains in, on Magic Online, especially if I'm selling it as part of a basket of things I have put together. 
Thunderkin Awakener from M20 going from 0.2 to 0.4, so about 100% gains. This is on the back of five color elementals in modern, recently 5 0 uh, I think April 3rd, and has put up uh, a few different results uh, along those lines in leagues. And then Narset Parter Avails, an inevitable gainer uh, out of War of the Spark, going from 0.12 tickets to 0.34. Of course, it's an uncommon, so pretty cheap on Magic Online. Um, I could see this ending up as a two-ticket card a couple of years, like within the next couple of years. I don't know how many months that will take, but I certainly wouldn't mind having 100 Nurse at Parter Avails, uh, depending on treasure chest distribution, I suppose. But 180% plus gains there, so lots of action on, on Magic Online as well. It's kind of wild to me that Narset's were 12 cents. Was worth, yeah. I mean, just uncommons get in heavily drafted sets, just get ground to dust on Magic Online. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's like, I guess it's just surprising, you know? It's, it's just like a context thing. Like, we think, if you think about it from a paper perspective, it seems weird. But on Magic Online, most uncommons are like fractions of a penny. So, yeah. Get something being 0. 0.12 is actually a lot. Um, all right, so we want to talk a, a little bit about the hottest cards that we flagged uh, in Ikoria and the Commander Ikoria decks that, that I guess are officially Commander 20, but are Ikoria themed. Um, lots to digest here. This is a very nuanced and complex set. Pretty much all of the mechanics are tough to parse and evaluate on first contact. There's the whole thing with the Godzilla cards being sort of exclusives uh, in Asia, but only three of them. And the fan- even those showing up in the English collector boosters and so on and so forth. So lots going on with Ikoria. Um, also likely to be an under-opened set, as we flagged a couple times now. What has grabbed your attention thus far? Um, th- this set was not designed for paper. It was pretty clearly designed for a digital environment and paper is just getting the cards as well. You have a set with unbelievably complicated, I, I think it's fair to say unbelievably complicated um, mechanics and rules to the point where Rosewater, they I read on more than one occasion that they had to remove uh, writing and paragraphs from mothership articles because people didn't understand the author on the mothership got the rules wrong. So uh, it just seems like it was the, the thumbprint of digital is much more obvious here than it has been in past sets. Sure. Um, I agree with all of that. The, I mean, one of the best examples of your point there is there's the artifact creature that I think when it comes into play, it, or no, at the start of combat, Crystalline Giant is the card I'm thinking of. It's a 3-3 three, three for 3. And at the beginning of combat, you choose a random counter, key, keyword counter, to give it out of a list of 10. So you have to roll a 10-sided die to decide and have a, a chart that assigns those things or something to figure out what it gets. <laughs> that's going to yeah, be and such a nightmare if there's ever a pre-release for this set. And that's the first one. You get... Like it's it's let's say it's out of ten options. The first time you do it, it's on a ten sided die. But then every time after that, it doesn't count the counters that it already has. So now it's nine sided, and now it's eight sided, and it's going to be. I mean, just a matter of tracking all of that is going to be a mess. Quite annoying. Yeah. 
All right, so in terms of good cards, probably the, the card that pumped hardest and fastest on first reveal was Fiend Artisan. This is the Nightmare Creature. It's uh, Golgari, uh, mana, green, black, green, black. It's a 1-1. One, one. Fiend Artisan gets plus 1, plus 1 for each creature card in your graveyard. So it's already got Shades of Tarmogoyf going on. And then it's also got Shades of Birthing Pod because it's X, green, black, tap, sack a creature, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost X or less, Put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. So Pod, of course, lets you go get a creature, sack a creature, go get a creature that's one more. This, you're paying full freight to go get a creature, and you have to sack any old creature. Um, this is a pretty pushed-looking card that seems designed for Constructed. Hey, are you familiar with the works of Alec Baldwin? The actor Alec Baldwin? Yes. Okay. In- because when you say the tribe name, I would say Golgari. Golgari. But you say Golgari. And when you say that, all I can think of is Golgari Glen Golgari. Or Golgari Glen Ross, right? Isn't that the movie he was in? Glengarry Glen Ross? Yeah, but I'm hearing Golgari Glen Ross. Okay. That's all I can hear. <laughs> I just felt like I should share that. Yeah, I, I saw Fiend Artisan. And like, I didn't even have... Before I even read the text box, I'm like, okay, so my monocost is two, uh, semi-flexible monocost, especially, you know, if you're in those two colors, uh, it's a mythic and it's a one, one. I'm like two color, you know, two mana mythic one ones, uh, are interesting. There's something there. Um, already I feel like this is a high chance of being constructed playable. Then now we see, oh, he gets one, one for each creature in your graveyard, which means you're probably playing this as a two mana, two, two for the most part. Not necessary, not guaranteed, but probably. Um, or, or, or he will be a two, two shortly after you play him uh, and can get much bigger. I mean, right? Like that's essentially uh, it's he grows, I would say slower than Tarmogoyf, but he's theoretically better. Well, has more, right? has more upside given enough time. Yeah. Like he's not, he's not going to, he's probably not going to power up as fast as Tarmogoyf does, but he can get bigger and in the right deck construction can also do it as fast as Tarmogoyf. Um, and then, yeah, you and then you have the pod mechanic on there as well. There's a lot of stuff here to like. So a couple of things that jumped out at me for modern is that for X, black, green, sack a creature that is currently being targeted with removal or dying in combat. I'm going to get death shadows for two. Because you got to pay X plus green or black. So you're paying a minimum of two. Well, I guess if you're getting an Ornithopter, you're still playing. You're only paying one. Um, but yeah, if you, you can go get a Death Shadow for two by sacking some other creature. And keep in mind, for standard at minimum, there's already a Jund uh, Cat Oven deck that's already hmm. throwing tons of stuff into the graveyard, sacking tons of stuff, and just having another sack outlet that also feeds off having a big graveyard seems like a lock to do some work. He's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would be surprised if this isn't playable in standard. Like, it just seems like it's so easy to go fetch 
small utility creatures and have this get bigger, right? It's just, it's a, it's going to be a solid threat at two mana on its own. I mean, you would probably wouldn't play this if he didn't have the pod ability, but like just a two mana one, one with that tax is probably close enough or might be close enough. And then you add in the pod ability and it's like, yeah, that's very solid. So that that jumped up to like thirty dollars right away. Uh, I I don't know what it's going to hold, but I'm certainly not buying anything from the set of thirty dollars. I I want to see what happens when the car- the cards are actually released. We're all still stuck at home a month from now, and there's nowhere to play paper, and so dealers are frantically trying to unload what people don't need to buy. Because there's definitely a hype cycle going on here where people are just buying as they would normally, like they're falling into their normal heuristics. But that's going to wear off in a month when headlines start talking about us leaving the house months later than people might be hoping for. Yeah. I do wonder how much of that is out there right now. People expecting this to be over sooner than it actually will be. So while I'm happy to... I've run a couple of experiments. Like I I deployed about $1,000 in capital this week on magic stuff. But I would have maybe been doing two, three, four thousand at this point in the year otherwise. Um, so, and most of that was targeted at things that were just ridiculously inexpensive online. So, like, there was $160 boxes of Theros collector boosters on eBay. And then there was a 15% off coupon for 200 plus. So, I got those boxes for like 130 each or something. Or like 135. Yeah, I caught that you. That's, that's just silly, silly, silly town, right? I. I saw your screenshot and I'm like 260 for a box of the collector's box. I'm like, that doesn't seem like that good of a deal. And then I noticed your quantity was two and I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I'm fine stashing that away because in the event that that never goes anywhere, I'm going to have bigger fish to fry than whether or not my magic cards are selling. Be trying to figure out how to get, how to get north and build a cabin. Right. Yeah. It's like all of this stuff should be fine. And if it's not fine, the last thing you're going to be concerned about is, (laughs) Magic cards. And and in the post-apocalyptic world, uh, Magic will probably be a popular game. It's portable. That's true. Well, sort of. You can play it by you can play it by gaslight. You can. You can play it by gaslight. I still don't know if I would call it. it Magic doesn't travel that well. If for one one deck travels well, right? I mean I'm gonna look prescient with my hard KCDH deck. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, so next big card uh, on the competitive scene, Lurus of the Dream Den. This is a cool-looking oh. card. Cool name. Badass art. Extended art probably looks fantastic. It's one white, black, white, black. So three. For a 3-2, legendary creature, Cat Nightmare. It's a companion. And this is a another one of the new mechanics that a lot of people have not parsed correctly at first blush. I got it wrong when I first, when this was revealed earlier today. Um, cause I was thinking, oh, you know what I'm going to do with Lurus? I'll put one in the sideboard, but three in the main. And then I realized that the condition for casting it out of the sideboard is that each permanent card in your starting deck has converted cat, cat mana cost two or less. And they've quite deliberately made him a three so that you can't mm-hmm. just get crazy with them. So basically what you're getting here is a three, two lifelink. And during each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard. Okay. So that's pretty cool. Uh, but this companion thing requires you to do some gymnastics with your deck. Except, out of the companions we've seen so far, this one seems the easiest to work around because in competitive uh, formats, especially things like Modern Legacy, Vintage, etc., 
it's very common for a lot of your stuff to be two or less and it's only the permanents in your deck that have to be two or less so you can still cast three four or five mana cards that are sorceries or or instants so for decks like soul sisters or um, the black white sram uh, enchantments based deck that's in pioneer right now this is just a free eighth card that you get every you draw every single game that comes in as a three two lifelink at minimum and potentially gives you reach so even if your deck doesn't really want to be casting this card at the point in the game where you have it as an option presumably you've run out of gas in your hand say in the sram deck you drop this into an empty board state and all of a sudden you can get one of the things back from your graveyard, which might pull back another thing from your graveyard, depending on which card you grabbed, um, or draw you a card in some other way because some of your enchantments draw cards, they have ca- their cantrips, and you're right back in it. So think everybody... And, and then that's not even to, to discuss the kind of bonkers things you might be able to do with this in Legacy or Vintage, right? Yeah, Lurus is to the point where people were talking about banning this card, banning being caused to ban companions. Um, and I don't think that that's entirely unfair because sort of the the play pattern this is going to cause is just, wow, I, I, don't, I barely have to put any deck, any constraints into my deck building and I get a eighth card in my hand. Also is a good eighth card, right? It's not even like it's, it's a crummy eighth card. Like it's a solid choice. Um, it's going to do some kind of crummy stuff to old formats, most likely. I saw it proposed uh, in Jun builds in Modern, where all of the permanents are two or less. Yeah. Um, I saw it proposed for Ant in Legacy. Um, yeah. People talking about uh, any of the decks that want to be like cycling through zero mana artifacts and so forth from their graveyard. This this can function like an additional Emery, for instance, if the rest of your deck in a build that say for instance didn't have urza um because that doesn't work but there's probably and this might spawn an entirely new archetype for that matter um combining elements from other decks so lurus as a rare i'll certainly be looking to see how low the extended arts get and also keeping my eye on whether it's just insanely busted it's totally fine if this gets banned in legacy that wouldn't hamstring it financially but it's not an edh card really so you kind of want it to hit the sweet spot where it is consistently good in Pioneer and Modern without being completely broken. Yeah, it's it's going to be tough for this to be good without being broken, I think. That's going to be the real challenge here. Uh, I, I don't... I don't to be honest, I don't love this card's odds of making it out of all of this unscathed. Sure, you've got you've got pressure from both sides. It might be too good and get banned, something that is very common in the, in the current epoch of Magic, or Magic's marketplace situation might just be terrible for months and months. In which case, you never get a chance to do anything with the copies you have. You know, yeah. in, in a normal situation, you might have got a cool buy list opportunity where you get cheap copies for whatever two bucks it's... or something from Europe, and then unload them to buy list for four but maybe that opportunity just won't exist for the next six months yeah i don't you know without knowing the paper market and where that's going to go it's so tricky and then you have that complication as well that we just you know in you know setting aside the whole pandemic thing the card is just 
It seems like in standard, it might be fine. And then the older the format, the, the more obnoxious it gets. And it's just, it's just a bad magic card. Like it doesn't, and I don't mean bad in that it's not worth the mana. I'm saying it, it encourages play patterns and behaviors that don't seem like what you want in your game. Um, even if they had, even if this was a cycle of companions that were in each of the enemy colors and they were all roughly as strong um, and it wasn't just one, that's still not great because now if you're not playing a deck, either you're playing a deck that can make use of the companions and then that means, uh, you know, 80% of the room is sitting down with this, with this, you know, one of the same five eighth cards in their hands. You know, you're not happy about that. And all their decks are going to be built similarly because they have deck building constraints. If that means if you're in order to not play the companion, you have to be playing a strategy that's better. You know, that's the, that doesn't need the eighth card, which is also difficult to do. Right. So it's, there's some real challenge there. Um, in, in, in how to construct that format. I just, I don't love where this ends up going, uh, in, in any context. Yeah. I have a feeling Fournier will have plenty to say about it next week. Another card that caught my eye on the mythic front, Cheville, Bane of Monsters. Green, black for a 1-3 death touch. This is the bounty commander we were talking about before. At the beginning of your upkeep, if your opponents control no permanents with bounty counters on them, put a bounty counter on target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls. And then whenever a permanent and opponent controls with bounty counter on it dies, you gain 3 life and draw a card. So you're basically getting, you're turning your kill spells, your fatal pushes, your abrupt decays, your assassin's trophies into gain 3 draw a card. It's a 1-3 death touch. I don't know how a red deck ever beats this card. That's that's pretty nasty. Because at sure. best, they're going to trade. Like, bolt your 1-3. And you're down a mana. If they leave it... <laughs> if they leave it on the table... Like, I, I could believe that Jund in Modern might run this card, right? Uh, I mean, I suppose that's possible uh i mean that's getting you're pretty tight at that point that's my concern because here's here's the thing it's not when you kill one of their permanents it's just when it dies so if a permanent leaves play that you've bountied you're going to get three life and draw a card well they might be playing a deck that cycle that does a bunch of that anyway like if you're playing against emery urza they're pushing things in and out of play. So you can just put it on, put that counter on something that they're, you know that they want to cycle through. Yeah, it's and or you can just put it on a creature that you intend you know they're gonna have to block with next turn. Because it happens at the beginning right. of your upkeep. So you're heading into your combat cycle, you know what they're gonna block with if you, you know, based on what you can see, and you're making it really bad for them to block with that creature. So now they got choices. This is this card pretty push for a for a green black. It's I think it's trickier than it looks, um, for sure. It definitely offers play pattern that you might not have anticipated. Uh and I agree that it will probably give red decks fits. Um, you know, that's gonna be trouble for them to get past. I, I it does seem a little bit on the slow side. It probably depends heavily on what the metagame ends up looking like and, and what's good and playable. It, this is a type of card that I feel like could go either way. It's a pretty cool commander card as well. I don't know if I would run it as my commander, 
but I could certainly f- see finding room for it in the 99 because it's such a nice political card. Yeah, it seems a little slow for me in Commander because it relies on the upkeep. Sure. So yeah, you only get you, you only get to do it once per turn cycle. Yeah, it's just it's gonna not, it's you're not gonna be able to get through anything. All right. So the other one that caught my eye, I'm curious about for modern and pioneer humans is General Kudro of Dronath. This is a three three for one white black, and he does a lot for three mana. Other humans all get plus one plus one. Whenever he or another human enters the battlefield, you get to exile target card from an opponent's graveyard. And for two sacrifice two humans, which of course is kind of a steep cost, you destroy target creature with power four or greater. Maybe a one of, maybe a two of. I felt like this was unimpressive at first glance. I have a friend who is more in tune with competitive magic than I am. He, he thought it was better mostly because it just got it gets tons of incidental value yeah you get your like it's a three mana three three which is fine uh it pumps your lords or your humans well that's pretty solid right it's not amazing but like that's solid and it also has some nice little graveyard hate okay well that's good too um oh also you can remove stuff uh, that works, you know, all of these kind of pieces individually, none of them are stellar, but when you staple them all to one creature, it's pretty nice. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the thing with Chevelle and General Kudro is that it's hard for them to be four ofs anywhere, but they could still see multi-format play as mythics, maybe as onesie twosies kind of thing. And so down the road... I could see these. I could see both of these cards getting very, very cheap this summer, like very cheap, and being great two to three year pickups. Yeah. Eh. Eh. I. Eh. I. Like, how, what price do you? What would you buy these? Would you buy these at a dollar? Mm, I so. <laughs> With or without the pandemic? Let's say without. Mm, no, no, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't like. I mean, yes, it's useful incidentally, but it's the type of card that I feel like you're not running for of for the most part, right? You're running. Sure, but as a one or two of. So with the pandemic. It is definitely, I also agree that they're not four of cards, um, but I think they might be multi-format cards. And I guess if I have to choose one over the other, I like General Kudro more because they always print humans. So any humans focused EDH decks, this guy's going to, it's in the right colors. This guy will be in an auto include because he just does so much work. Like we said, Cheville strikes me as a card that might just fly under the radar. Like if it, it might do some work in standard, maybe, maybe in pioneer, but could also just kind of fade into the background and be forgotten. Yeah, there again, I, I you know, I'm I'm a little more risk averse on this stuff simply because I feel like there's never a shortage of targets, so I'm not eager to buy in on stuff that I don't feel strongly about. Um so probably probably worth pointing out uh Lutri the Spell Chaser. This is the 3-2 Elemental Otter. Yes. Elemental Otter. 
one blue red one blue red so is it colors companion each non-land card in your starting deck has a different name flash when Lutri the spell chaser enters the battlefield if you cast it copy target instant or sorcery spell you control you may choose new targets for the copy well this has the dis- fine distinction of being the first ever card banned in commander from the get-go yeah, that was pretty amusing as well uh so you know companion really coming out of the gate swinging here showing that they are causing all sorts of problems already yeah i mean the the bottom line here is that it's not that this card is so crazy powerful it's that every single blue red deck in commander would be running it because why wouldn't they yeah yep so which they, is they just why they banned they, it. they are resisting ubiquity um which i think is fine like the format doesn't need the card the play patterns it creates are already available on other cards it's whatever yeah that's really the the i feel like the mark here is that this is a card that doesn't do anything all that special and you know you can get that elsewhere you don't have to pay for it here it's just why wouldn't you why wouldn't you take it for free essentially yeah so do you want to flag some of the cards over from the commander decks that were revealed? There are five of them. Ruthless Regiment, Arcane Maelstrom, Symbiotic Swarm, which was uh, leaked uh, earlier this spring, Timeless Wisdom, and Enhanced Evolution. Um, lots of cool cards in these decks. Uh, I think my picks so far for the two commanders, I think, most likely to see a lot of play are probably Zyrus the Writhing Storm and Zazara the Exemplary. Um, though I could easily see arguments for some of the others. Well, I think you're spot on with Zyrus. That one jumped out at me as being, uh, doing a lot of things that EDH players like to do. It's going to have play patterns that people like. It's going to do cool things. So I'm on board with that being good. Building Zyrus is just going to be so nasty. Like it's in teamer colors. So you have Zyrus, Doubling Season, Windfall, and Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, you get all the Windfall effects, you get, and you get all the to- a lot of the good token effects. Well, the token doubling effects. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be hard to build. It's going to be hard to make cuts. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of the case with all Commander decks now, right? Like, you, we are long past the point where it is difficult to fill out your deck unless you are trying to build something very specific. Sure. So is there any uh, other than Zyrus and Z- Zazara? And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing those correctly since they chose ridiculous names. Um, any, any of the others jump out at you as things you think people will be excited about? Well, I thought Calamax looked interesting, too. Um, that's the elemental dinosaur, the four mana four, four. And when you cast an instant or sorcery spell, if he's tapped, you get to copy it, which seems pretty good. Um, and it's whenever you cast your first instant spell each turn. So if you tap him for some purpose on your turn, and if you're smart, you're using like spring leaf drum or something. Then every turn after, then you just pass and then you just keep casting instant spells and getting that effect over and over again. So that's going to be uh, popular. Yeah, so they flagged him. They were talking about him on Command Zone that came out today, uh, the episode that came out today talking about this deck. And Josh was mentioning that 
the simplest thing you do is on somebody else's turn, they do something, whatever. His example was cultivate. And you fork it. And then Calamix forks the fork. And you have infinite forks. So he gets infinitely large. And then you finish the stack by going back and copying the cultivate again instead of culti- instead of forking your fork. So you just have cultivate, infinite forks, he's infinitely big, and another cultivate. And you end up, if I understand that stack correctly, you end up copying cultivate twice for yourself and having an infinitely large Calamax. And that's with twin cast, fork, whatever. That is there, yeah, okay. So I haven't really thought about that, but that's pretty nasty if it's true because there's so many of those effects. It's not going to be hard. Yeah. To set that up. So getting infinite Calamax seems to be the goal in that deck. Uh, that deck was kind of weird because the way that it is shipped. First of all, a broader comment. Uh, I think these decks are a lot better than the ones last fall. I think there's, uh, there's not a lot of huge reprint value, but there's a lot of new card value. And given that I also suspect these will undersell versus what they normally would have. Uh, I think the best cards in this set being new is actually a boon to MTG Finance because it means that they're going to be a single source uh, and that source is smaller than usual, so they should pop faster. Um, Now, that being said, some of them were built very strangely, like missing the cards that would make the commanders in question great. Like there's no wheel effects in the Calamax deck, even though he's the banner commander on the front of it. (laughs) Well, that's that's a, that's a choice, I suppose. Um, I would argue. I think the Writhing Storm is going to catch people. Is in the same deck, of course, and is going to catch people uh, people's attention uh, to a greater degree. Um, but there's lots of interesting stuff here. Like White got a couple of like pretty important cards. Verge Rangers is two white three three first strike. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. As long as an opponent controls more lands than you, you may pay, play lands from the top of your library. So it's like a white courser of Crufix. Yeah, that card is good and had some attention drawn to. I think a lot of white decks are going to want that card. I, I don't see the decks that make it getting rid of it. Um, or I should say, I don't see the people who buy it, the deck, getting rid of the card. In fact, they're just going to want more. So that's going to end up very popular beyond the decks that it, it ships in. And I can see that becoming a... Uh, choke point for price for sure saw some people bitching that astral drift was reprinted here which was just printed last summer in modern horizons and in theory is still in print uh that's a little weird but fine by me i mean i'm not holding non-foil astral drifts i'm holding foil astral drifts and printing a new cycling commander in jeskai colors only makes those more likely to sell yeah that that's that's nice uh dismantling wave certainly caught my eye as a uber staple for white it's two and a white for a sorcery for each opponent destroy up to one target artifact or enchantment that player controls so destroy your soul ring and your soul ring and your soul ring please mm-hmm. that's playable um, and it cycles for th- eight so it fits oh. automatically into the cycling deck and when you cycle it it destroys all artifacts and enchantments so if you build her to not rely heavily on them yourself, you could really get nasty. Yeah, and White's always kind of had that uh, tension of, do I play my own artifact enchantments or do I run the cards that blow up all of them and not screw myself? I 
I, I will tell you that I was underwhelmed with the commanders this time around. Um, Zyrus is is going to be popular. You know, I expect that to get some some action. But um, beyond that, I, I wasn't that in love with what is on offer here. Um, I thought that like Jinra Kudro, the one who makes a human one one human soldier token each time you've cast your commander. So you get one human like, the first time, then two, then three, then four, then five. Yeah, just like, okay, I get a commander that makes a couple tokens, but then doesn't really do anything after the fact. Like, you know, I can play a four mana sorcery well, that does this job essentially better than you. Sure, but her her main thing is that she's giving you two three ones because she gives humans you control plus two plus zero. And then the black-white general we were talking about before gives them another plus one plus one. So if you have the two of them in play, then you're getting four two tokens. So sure. the second time you cast her, you're getting uh, two four twos. Yeah, I mean, you're building out a human army, and presumably the rest of your deck is all about it. Is that is it, that enough to draw? It, you know, draw in the creative types that really like to tackle a new problem? Probably not. Well, and that's what I'm focusing on. Is I'm looking at these commanders and going, is this going? Is this commander going to draw people to build it? Are they going to look at this card and go, I want to make this deck? I can say that about Zyrus and Calamax. I don't think that's the case with Jinria, Janira, or what have you. Or Calcian. Yeah, Calcian the Plague. I get the same impression. Um, you know, it, the one damage to... She's the one where you ping for one damage, and if it the creature dies, you get experience counters, and she gets bigger. But, you know, if she doesn't have death touch, then you're probably not going to have a... You mean there's always... There might be some X1 to- tokens floating around, which helps. Um, but, you know, even if you're pinging stuff with her and building her power and toughness, all you're doing is making your commander a little bigger. So if you get up to seven or eight uh, experience token. So you've pinged seven or eight creatures that have died at her hand. You now have a three mana 8 8 vigilance haste commander. Okay. I mean, it's it's not uh, thrilling. So that's another one that it just feels like you're going to put in all this work and the reward is mediocre. Now, on the other hand, we do have a bunch of non official commanders in the form of the multicolored. Uh, uber creatures that are in Ikoria set proper that also have the Godzilla skins available. And I suspect that that is sexy enough that some people are going to be driven to be fooling around with them. Um, so for instance, we have uh, Nethroi Apex of Death, who is Biolante plant beast form, two uh, Abzan, legendary creature, cat nightmare beast for a 5-5. It mutates for four green-white Green slash white, so hybrid mana. Black, black, so seven total. Death touch, lifelink. And whenever it mutates, return any number of target creature cards with total power 10 or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Uh, Yeah, that card is pretty cool. That one I liked quite a bit. But that's not in the commander product, right? That's like the... Yeah, that's in Ikoria proper, but still a present commander to be discussing. Sure. Yes. Now that one, I like that. I like that that does some cool stuff. Uh, you're going to get some, people are going to like the value you get out of that. 
So I'm on board for that card. So there's another card that Fournier flagged to me earlier today. Uh, Vodrox Apex of Thunder in the Godzilla skin is Rodan Titan of Winged Fury. It's Jeskai for a 3-3 flying first strike. Or you can mutate it for one white slash blue red red. Whenever this creature mutates, you may cast target non-creature card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. So you can either play a 3-3 flying first strike or pay one more mana and get the same thing stapled onto another creature and get something back from your uh, back from your graveyard and put it into play. That one is good. That card, what was the name of that one again? Uh, Vodrox Apex of Thunder, if I'm reading it correctly. Is it, it's not B-O-D? I'm looking up the anime version now that I can read more easily. It is... Oh, okay. Bad Rock, Apex of Thunder. Okay. Yeah, this is the one that I wanted to mention. This Bad one Rock. is good, too. Yeah, Apex of Thunder. Bad Rock. But the thing is, I don't see this as being a commander card. I feel like this is a lot... Like, you're you're unlikely for this as a commander card to be worth it, um, but I can see this in Constructed. Yeah. Like, this seems to me like a legitimate standard or pioneer card. EDH, I'm not excited. Fournier being all about the Jeskai mid-range control builds in competitive formats is looking at this as bringing back uh, little to fairy <laughs> like staple this onto something bring back to fairy is pretty nasty uh yeah i would agree with that i mean really if you're mutating this you're paying four mana you're giving whatever you've got in play uh you don't really care uh flying in first strike which is solid um and then the you know you paid four to mutate it but you're getting something that costs three back so you've uh, you know, you're essentially paying one mana to give another creature flying in first strike uh, while getting your, your permanent back. So I think that that's definitely a good trade. Side note, I'm a little torn here because I was expecting the art for the Godzilla cards to be cool. But I was hoping for super cool and it's just cool. Whereas the uh, box topper alternate uh, comic book art for all of these mutate creatures. Uh, sorry, showcase, not box stopper. Getting things confused. Um, the showcase art for the mutate creatures, which range from common all the way through to mythic, is exceptionally cool. Um, tons of great artists featured, um, very dynamic art, very colorful. And one of the first sets of magic cards I have even remotely considered collecting as a completionist just to put in a binder side by side. Yeah, uh, I will say that I think this is the coolest showcase art they've done so far. Yeah, for sure. I'm I I I'm not even like a big comic book guy. Like I, I own zero comic books. I'm not into comic books. Uh, but I definitely like all of the showcase art out of this. No doubt about it. I was talking to somebody, um, one of our members the other night, and I was talking saying that. Eldraine conceptually very strong, but the market for referencing, you know, Hans Christian Andersen or Grimm fairy tales circa 1560 or whatever is relatively limit, limited. It was like more of a uh, graphic designer, graphic designers uh, template for showcase art. This is much more mainstream appeal. Like these are just super cool looking monsters in extremely dynamic poses, very colorful they are going to be very, very popular. 
Now, one of them that jumped out at me as being has has a siege rhino esque feel to me that makes me wonder about it for at least standard, if not pioneer. Um, Snapdax Apex of the Hunt, one Mardu, three five double strike. So already this thing is a six five, effectively a six five for four. Um, whenever this creature mutates, it deals four damage to target creature or planeswalker and opponent controls, and you gain four life. That reeks of Siege Rhino to me. Now, the mutate cost is five there, not four. But in the case where you don't have anything to mutate onto it or it onto, you're getting a essentially a six five for four. Yeah, this one is pretty nasty. Um, you know, you're pl- you have to play a good four drop uh, first. I feel like that's going to be key here. But if you do, you know, if you play a solid four drop, now on turn five, you give that four drop double strike, which depending on your four drop is going to be real gross. I would have to go back and kind of see what the options were, but that seems like you've got some choices there. Uh, and you get to kill something uh, and gain four life in the process. Like, yeah, that is going to be a very powerful one-two punch depending on what you're working with. So I'm, I, I agree that this has some some legroom. And the thing about like these mutate creatures for commander is that if down the road, they give us more mutate creatures, these, all these just get better because you yeah. have more options and you can build out the deck in a way that is more consistently yeah. going to mutate because with the current, no, I wanna... with the current swath mutating in your commander decks is going to be a little more touch and go. Yeah. And I want to highlight that I am not talking about EDH at this point. I'm still talking, I'm talking about standard and pioneer. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, Apex of the Hunt is good in EDH. Yeah. One of the other ones is Brokos, Apex of Forever. Hilarious to call a card Brokos. They should have saved it for something that would get banned. That would have been epic. Uh, that is a, a funny name. Two Sultai, 6-6, six, six, Trample. And you can cast it from your graveyard using its mutate ability. So that means you can staple a 6-6 six, six, Trample onto anything for five. And if they kill that, that stack... You just do it again. Yeah, I. this is obviously a ton of value. I'm not super in love with the card. Um, I mean, yes, it's. does it have a lot of value? For sure. Do I think that it's unbeatable? Like, no. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I'm not blown away by Brokos, which is unfortunate because he's got a ridiculous name and possibly even more ridiculous art. I would certainly play him in Maldrotha. Hmm. Because I'm going to get to play something in my graveyard for free anyway. And I have a feeling with the mutate cards, when you get to play it, you get to play the mutate cost. So, I mean, one way or the other, <laughs> either off the Maldrotha trigger or just using its mutate, it's going to come back. Um, Gem Razor looks pretty playable in a bunch of formats. That's the one for three and a green. You get a four, four reach trample. So right away, you have a 4-4 four, four reach trample for 4, solid rate. But you get to mutate it for 3, which, uh, if you do that, destroy target artifact or an enchantment and opponent controls. But that's always going to have a target in EDH. And this anime art on it is ridiculous. Like, so dynamic. He's, yeah, he's good. He's almost seems like a... 
mean, I can see this getting played in EDH, I suppose. Um, because you're always going to have targets. Although you're really just going to have... You're, and if, if you're playing in this in EDH, you're just paying three mana to to destroy something. And then now your other creatures reach and trample, which is is fine. Well, you're, Or this is a 4-4 four, four reach trample that gains the abilities on the other creature. Uh, yeah, that too. I... Either either way, like you're you're essentially paying three mana to destroy an artifact or enchantment with upside, which in again in EDH I'm not really bowled over by. It's fine, but I'm not amazed with it. Um, there was something else. What was the other card that I wanted to mention? <sighs> the way this is laid out makes it difficult to find some of these cards. I mean, all of these are like especially in medium power EDH decks, a lot of these seem very playable. Like Boneyard Lurker, this isn't going to blow anybody away as a four mana four four, but it's mutate is the same cost essentially. And whenever this creature mutates, return target permanent card from your graveyard to your hand. So you're really just getting an eternal witness for what it's a four, four for one more mana. Uh, that one's fine. That'll probably see some play. Oh, you know what card uh, looked pretty gross to me was, and I don't know how much you're going to see it get played, um, strictly because of the mana involved. Uh, it was Mythos of Brokos. Okay. Which is, if you spend Simic mana on it, you are paying four mana for a demonic tutor draw two cards. Right. So that is very solid. Like, hard to beat that. I mean, D- Diabolic Tutor is already extremely popular in EDH. So now you're telling me that for the same mana cost, not only do I get to do that, I also get to draw, essentially draw two cards. Like, that's going to be real good. Yeah. Another one more to flag here, and we'll probably talk. We're going to obviously get deeper on all of this next week with Fournier, so I don't want to burn all of our, our action here. Manascape Refractor. Three mana artifact enters the battlefield tapped. It has all activated abilities of all lands on the battlefield. You may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to pay the activation cost of Manascape Refractor's abilities. <laughs> That's the kind of card that seems innocent enough until you look at your average EDH battlefield and realize how many things this card suddenly does. Yeah, that is going to give people a whole lot of options. Because if I run this, for instance, in Brea, uh, an artifact-based commander that likes to cycle things in and out of the graveyard all the time with engine goblin engineers and, and so forth, I'm going to copy your strip mine. Use it. It's going to go. I'm going to bring it back. Strip mine something else. Then I'm going to bring it back. Then I'm going to copy your Academy Ruins and bring back some other artifact or whatever. And I'm just going to go to town with all this ridiculous utility for a while until I'm done doing whatever nonsense there is to do. It's anything that you know, is playing with the other lands in play is uh, the the pieces are kind of there to be a problem. And we don't know if it will be, but it certainly feels like it could be. And it also, I, I, I guess it in flag, it just taps for the mana that they tap for. <laughs> so your worst case scenario here is you have a three uh, mana mana rock that comes in tapped that makes all colors. 
Yeah, it's potent to say the least. Seems like it might be another card that just ends up kind of way more popular than the card the deck really gives it room for. Like this has to be the type of card that they print knowing that they then have to put a reprint into play relatively soon. Or you're going to get like an Arcane Signet type of situation. Well, speaking of Arcane Signet, it's reprinted here. And it's reprinted at Common, which means it's in all the decks. So that spec is pretty much dead in the water. And I hope people that got them early from the Throne of Eldraine collector boosters managed to get out uh, in time. Because Soul Ring, Commander Sphere, and Arcane Signet are all in these decks, uh, which was a question mark I had leading into them was whether one or the other of Soul Ring and Arcane Signet would not be present. Like maybe if they gave a Signet, they wouldn't give a Soul Ring, but they seem committed to both. Um, so entirely possible you'll get them again in the fall. And I think that this undermines the Douglas Johnson strategy of investing in Soul Ring every year because when it was once a year, that was a very reliable spec. I just sold 200 copies of Soul Ring to... Uh, card kingdom for cash with like a 50% upswing and like a three month hold I don't know if I'd be confident picking up 200 copies of Soul Ring again heading out of these decks yeah yeah I agree with that and I also think that if you bought Arcane Signets or you know specced on them and didn't think that those were going to get reprinted you were you were living out of prayer there all right, so we have a Cards to Watch segment, which I guess could be segments five and six, according to you. But since uh, the Magic Online segment section is a little scant, we'll just call it segment five, if that's okay. Cheating. <laughs> um, all right, so the, the one card that I went on, in on this weekend that already generated a pretty solid return for people that got out early um, was Ice Fang Quaddle. The Modern Horizons started getting drafted mid-late last week. It's drafted for one week. A lot of the key staples would naturally be expected to fall, and normally that would mean like on Saturday during the heaviest drafting they would hit their low point, and then you would expect that they would peter out. Um, that was certainly the opinion of Oko Assassin, uh, our guest from a few shows back, who's a member of our Discord. I was wondering whether people being at home might mean that the lows were actually experienced later in the cycle, so instead of on Saturday, that whether we would see it on like today, Tuesday, or Wednesday of this week, leading into the end of the drafting. Turns out we were both right. The The lows that were experienced on Saturday have been in part revisited today. But in the interim, I think it was either Saturday night or Sunday morning, there was an opportunity to get out of stuff. Like you could have picked up Coatles, I think at their low, around 14 or 15 tickets, uh, and then unloaded them closer to 22 or 23 and gotten a 50% return in like 24 to 48 hours, um, which is very, very sweet. Now, currently, as we're recording tonight, Ice Fang Quaddle is back down to about 18 tickets. Um, and I could, if it dodges inclusion in the treasure chests in the next few weeks, I could easily see it getting back up into that 22 to $23 range or even higher. Um, so that's my call for Magic, card, Magic Online card to watch this week. Um, super important card in both Modern and Legacy. Uh, lots of decks running it as a four of and seems the most likely of all the rares in the MH1 to recover the fastest. Well, I like the thought process here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to defer to you uh, on the ideas, uh, but I think that this is a very legitimate card uh, with a good profile. So I'm, I'm on board with it here. All right. Uh, you want to give me your first paper pick we've had in a few weeks? 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we're both in position here that we have to mark these as, uh, but we, you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic, so we are aware of what's going on here. Um, so we're kind of making the picks based on that. These, my two picks, I think you can probably buy this week. If you get them to into you, you can hope to resell them next week. But I don't know. Honestly, I don't know if you're going to get them in the mail fast enough to be able to do that. Beyond that, we're sort of at the mercy of the world around us. But looking at the commander slate, I think I've said that Zy- I think Zyrus is probably going to be the most popular commander. He seems to give players an opportunity to do some really fun stuff. Now he's a he's primarily it seems like a windfall commander. You know he wants windfall effects, and he also generates tons of snake tokens. Well, it just so happens there's a bunch of cards that play well with snakes. And so you don't have to build this as a snake deck, but you can benefit from those tokens being snakes. And the first one that jumps out at me is Sashira the Anointed. Um, time frame, your guess is as good as mine. My confidence is about as good as I'm willing to give in the current climate. But Sashira the Anointed is from uh, Champions of Kamigawa. This is the Six mana green creature, legendary snake monk. It's six mana for a three, four. Uh, other snakes get plus two, plus two. So he makes all of those one, one snakes that Zyrus creates three threes, which is considerably better. And it turns them all into Aphidians. Whatever snake you control deals combat damage to a player, you can draw a card. So Sashiro is six mana to turn all your dinky one, ones into three threes that are also Aphidians, which I think is very uh, desirable here. You can buy in for about five bucks. He did see a bump in price. Uh, I want to say it was on the back of Hapatra. I can't guarantee that, but it was roughly around then, um, along with some other snake cards. So inventory is low, price is about five bucks because you know you kind of went through that cycle. But I wouldn't be surprised to see this hit ten or even possibly fifteen, based on Zyrus. Um, you know, on TCG player right now, I'm seeing thirty-seven vendors. You know, there's like one guy, two guys who have more than a playset. There's not a lot of them out there. Uh, and if, you know, we get a, if some number of people decide to build Zyrus, I can imagine Sashiro going pretty fast. Sashiro has wicked cool art. The guy has four arms <clears throat> or something, four, six arms, enough, enough arms that he's shooting up. He's falling through the air, shooting a bow up in the sky and down below him at the same time. Um, so he's already cool. And as you said, like snake, being a snake is not really what this new commander is all about. But the fact that it generates a ton of snakes makes anything that makes snakes triple the size certainly worth a look, especially when it hasn't been reprinted in forever. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thinking is you know it's not a snake deck, but it can make use of things that pump snakes are decent here. And also worth like flagging that foils of this card like basically don't exist. Don't exist. I I see one seller with four copies at twenty bucks a piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would certainly. I, I. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'd certainly be willing to snap a few, a couple of those off on the assumption that I'll sell them for forty within eighteen months or something. Yeah, I didn't talk about foils because I know the inventory is very low. Um, 
from the last time. Uh, and I know they were pricey, but I think that there's probably some good choices there as well if you're willing to take the take the jump. Yeah, I mean, the combination of being a double lord plus giving Ophidian, that's a lot. Like that that could be that could yeah. be your overrun in this deck. It yeah, it just seems like such a a perfect card for the deck. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, this does uh, pretty much everything I want it to do. Yeah. Um, all right, so I like that one. Uh, one of the things that I've got on my radar for a long term hold is Clothis, God of Destiny. It's been a few different members in our Discord that have been pushing this card from early on. I wasn't convinced it was ever going to be more than a one or a two of, but it has been showing up very consistently in that green-red Ponza build and also in Jund builds in Modern. And it looks like it's earned its slot there. It's a $4 uh, Pioneer Modern EDH playable Mythic. Um, Inventory is incredibly deep right now, so there's no rush at all. But I know that at some point, I'm going to want to have 100 copies of this in in my inventory. Um, Because it does a unique thing that doesn't show up that often. And seems to occupy a sweet spot in a deck that is doing, just seems set to do well in at least Modern. And if it's good enough for Modern, it's probably going to be good enough for Pioneer at some point. So, yeah, Clothis at 4 bucks as a multi-copy Mythic seems solid. And if 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 that green red deck was posting up top eight results in paper tournaments and we weren't in this crisis, I would already have bought some. Um, in this circumstance, <laughs> it's just a card, literally a card to watch, which is important to remember about this segment. This is not cards to run out and buy right now necessarily. In this case, given how deep the inventory is, it's a buyer's market, so you can wait till a really sweet coupon shows up, or <laughs> excuse me. Take, take your time with it. Um, and it's the kind of card I'd be looking to buy 100 copies of on news of some major breakthrough on COVID. Like, people are going to be out of your houses in six weeks. I'm going to start looking at cards like this. Okay. I think that that's probably a good perspective on the card um, and a good way to treat it. Like, you know, this is th- this is what I'm interested in if we... If we if we make it out of this alive, essentially, um, he yeah he's you know I feel like we haven't seen him do too much yet, but at the same time he is going to he's very solidly positioned in those formats. He's you know he's solid in EDH. Um, I, I like I like the I like the strategy here for sure, uh, and I, I guess we're just kind of in a position where. It's a good pickup if you know people are going to be at the tables playing magic regularly. Um, and until but until we have that information, it's hard to do much with it. Yes, yeah, so I'm looking looking at the modern like top fifty right now and seeing if he's broken through. Just double checking that because um, it's entirely possible he's in the fifty to hundredth most played cards in the format right now for modern. But that green-red deck is seeing enough play online that I'm suspicious as to whether it is actually a top 50 card now. Yeah. 
Yeah, it doesn't look like it's in the top 50 yet. My guess is it's probably in the 60th or 70th most played cards in the format currently. Okay. I mean, that's still pretty good shape, right? Yeah. Get it. I mean, like, it's, it's, we know that there's some plausible plausibility there. Agreed. So, my second pick of this week is Zhang Yang Yu Wildcrafter Stained Glass, the same one we flagged uh, for going up. Um, there's just no copies around. So this isn't a real spec in the sense that you can run out and buy 100 copies. That's just not going to happen. Um, this is the kind of thing where if you're holding one, if you already have it, I wouldn't be in a rush to sell it unless you need the money. If you're looking for one for personal use, definitely poke around and see if in some dark corner of the internet you can find one. You might even want to try calling an LGS that's closed. Because one of the things that uh, an owner of an LGS might have done is taken some inventory home that they could sell from their living room. That's certainly what I would have done if I was running a, a re- card-based retail operation. Um, so you might be able to strike a deal uh, for something like this plus other things. Um, and you know, if you can't track it down, oh well. <laughs> Wait for your Volume 5 uh, Stargazer set to arrive, I suppose. Yeah, you figure anyone who was running a store, like they can go into their store, but they can't host anybody. So ideally, they are bringing back their inventory home to sell online. But if they know you, you might be able to reach out to them and say, hey, uh, I would like this card and I can buy it locally. So rather than have you have to pay eBay, um paypal fees and what have you i'm a local customer you know i'd be happy to arrange some sort of local purchase it is um get, get my hands on yeah it. it's such a good time to be supporting your local lgs by reaching out offering to spend a couple hundred bucks to make it worth their while to care and you know help them feed their families they unload some cardboard minus the fees as you said you get the cards you're looking for sure you don't get to play with them for a while but you've you've done a good deed and gotten what you wanted and some of these things might actually spike down the road so who knows how many yeah, I think how many local game stores actually ordered secret layers, but if you know that they did, this is one of the things you might be looking for. Yeah, I think I think reaching out to your store um, you know, you get to feel like you've both done done a good deed for your local economy and you might be able to pick up a good price. All right, what's your final pick? Um, you know, keeping on this theme, I, there are really, you could go any number of ways with this, uh, with Zyrus. The other card that I'm interested in is Cassetto, Orochi Archmage. Um, he's from Commander 2015, and he is a 3-mana 2-2 uh, legendary snake wizard. And he says, 2-mana target creature can't be blocked. And if it's a snake, it gets plus two, plus two. So that means your Zyrus, who is a snake, uh, can't be blocked and gets plus two, plus two. So now you're swinging with a five power Zyrus, who is unblockable, which means you get to force him through for his trigger, which is your opponent drawing cards, which is um, you getting more snakes, which is going to be good. And, you know, there's the political aspect of that, too. I know, James, you had said before the cast that you never want to hit an opponent with Zyrus. And I think there are going to be some players who are very much in that realm but other players may want to kind of make use of the political aspect of it or they may have other effects that damage opponents when they draw cards so forcing them to draw may be good Cer- uh, certainly not that i don't ever want to i just wouldn't be building the deck around doing so 
um, sh- they there's certainly political upside, and there will be situations where you don't have the right card in hand to save the table, but maybe the person you hit can, so they agree to take the hit, and you both get a chance at fixing the situation. I think it's, you know, well, some, you know, I, I played enough EDH where sometimes one guy is so far ahead of the table, I'm going to turn to the third guy and be like, dude, let me hit you with Zyrus to see if you can draw a couple cards to get us out of this. Like, I know you play a lot of Wraths and he has an unbeatable board. Let me hit you and you can see if you can draw into your Wrath. So there's that kind of aspect. There's also the fact that if you're playing a bunch of Windfall effects in your Zyrus deck, you're likely to be playing cards that penalize other players for drawing cards. Um, so, you know, if you have those types of effects in play, making them draw up your Zyrus is going to get you paid anyways, because uh, you're going to be doing damage to them. And he also draws you cards as well, so you could look at it, you know, when you hit, you do get to, you also get to draw, so you're like, well, I think your card or draws are worse than mine. Whatever, it doesn't matter. If you want to force him through, you can. Um, Cassetto... Uh, like I said, was from Commander 2015. You can score copies if you buy in bulk for under a dollar, close to a dollar. Um, there's about 50 vendors on TCG Player for whatever that means right now. Inventory is on the deeper side. You know, some one guy's got 11, somebody's got 19, somebody further down the page is 25. So there's definitely some copies out there. Now, if every single vendor had 10 copies and there's 48 vendors... That's 480 copies. That's still nothing in the context of how many of these decks could eventually be sold. Um, You know, if your target probably gets 20 to 40 of these to begin with, uh, and that's just your local target, right? So it doesn't, you know, even if there's 500 of this card out there when we're talking about a commander product, the most possibly the most popular commander out of a commander product release, 500 copies isn't a lot. I am looking at this as basically a buy list play. Hopefully you get in at a dollar. If he goes up to four or five, six bucks, you can buy list at two or three. You know, if you can buy list this at three and maybe get some store credit bonus on top of that, you can you can be in a position to pick up 10, 20, 30, 40 copies at roughly a dollar and then turn around and buy list them for you know 250 to $4. I think you're in good position there. So you're not looking, you're not looking to shoot the moon with this guy, but I think given the low price and how available he is to buy in medium bulk quantity, um, you could be in a good position to double or, or triple up in store credit. That makes sense to me. The uh, I've got a couple other things to throw out here that I think are also... Uh, relevant uh, for the same commander. The uh, one card I was looking at for uh, Zyrus is Opposition. There's only three premium versions of Opposition. Uh, and it's, They are Seventh Foil, Urz's Destiny Foil, which is the first set ever to have foils, and Masterpiece Amonkhet. All of them are in the... I think the Amonkhet Masterpiece is around 20 to 25, last I checked. Uh, and then 7th and Originals are in the more like 40 to $45 range. So I outed some CK credit on a long-range buy, since who knows when they're going to ship. Um, picking up, snapping off a copy at 45 because tapping down whatever you need to with your posse of snakes seems like a lock. Uh, piece 
of note that everybody will run in Zyrus if they're thinking straight. And the other card that gra- uh, that stood out to me was uh, the aforementioned Eldrazi Monument. That's the five mana artifact. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one, have flying, and are indestructible. At the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice a creature. If you can't, sacrifice the monument. So all your snakes fly. They all get plus one, plus one. If they're using your Sashiro, they get another plus two, plus two, and they draw you cards, so the game's probably over. Um, worth noting that the Eldrazi Monument was just reprinted in the Mystery Boosters, but of course not as a foil. The only foil version of that card is the Zendikar version. There are eight listings on TCG, and I think if you can pick up a foil Eldrazi Monument at 30, you're probably pretty safe for it not to see a reprint anytime soon. Just caught... Yeah, that sounds... Sorry, go ahead. It just caught the, the printing in Mystery Boosters... People keep talking about a lot all these reprints that they're expecting in Commander Legends, but the set is so full, is going to have so many options and so many new cards that anything that all already got printed this year, I feel like is a lot safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I agree with you there. Uh, this is a that that's a good choice. I think Eldrazi Monuments can be very powerful in that deck for sure because you're going to have a million tokens and having that effect is going to be quite useful. Does that give... Hold on, let me just double-check the rules. So it's just Flying and Indestructible. Okay, not Death Touch. Death Touch would be great. But yeah, that that's so good. A 1-1 one, one, Flying and Indestructible just means you can block forever. That's so great. And you're never going to run out of tokens with this. So I like that. There, There's a bunch of different ways to go with this, honestly. And I think... People may key in on the windfall aspect of this, but making the use of those snake tokens is going to be so good. Um, I have a couple. I have other cards that are open too. Uh, Patron of the Orochi is roughly in the same place for me as Sashiro the Anointed. Um, Sashiro, you know, it's a an expensive green card from the Kamigawa block as Snake Offering. So uh, if you Snake Offering by sacrificing one of the tokens, you don't actually get a mana discount, but you do get to cast Patron of the Orochi as an instant. So you sack a token, you get to play your patron for as an instant, and uh, it's it's a eight minus seven eight minus seven seven. When you tap it, untap all forests and green creatures. Uh, <laughs> use this ability only once each turn, but that's still fine. Um, so you can flash this in at the end of your opponent's turn, untap, have all your crap available to you. Tap him, which untaps all your cre- like use all your creatures to do stuff. Probably something like then- Cryptolith, right? generate tons of mana and do something bonk. yeah and like tap Gaia's Cradle to make a ton of mana and then Voyaging Seder yeah. or whatever to un- or you know Curious Follower to untap the Gaia's Cradle make more and then use Patron to untap those which then untap the Gaia's Cradle and then he untaps himself and it's uses ability only once each turn but then he when you tap him he untaps himself and then it's your opponent's turn and you can do all that crap again this deck's gonna be fun I'm gonna start building this tonight actually <laughs> So, so patron like patron of the Orochi just seems. I mean, it's just a, an obscenely gross card, and it will it will just be useful when you have a ton of snakes, I guess. Um, just because it's easy to play the snake offering it doesn't synergize specifically, but it's just a a good card. I I feel like. Yeah, I do. I do have one final thought. Uh, the free cycle of cards in the commander decks are three of them at least are ridiculous odd like forever staples. There's the blue one, which is called uh, Fierce Guardianship. It's a negate that is free if you control a commander. It's going to be in every blue deck forever and ever. It's even more of a staple probably than Smothering Tithe would be my guess. 
Hmm. More of a commander staple than smothering tithe. I think so. I think every blue deck will run it in the same way that every white deck wants smothering tithe. I I don't know. I I I would not put this in any of my decks. A, a free a now, free I, negate that you can. I now. I, I'm not saying the card's not good. I'm saying that when I play commander, I want cards that are fun. Okay. And let me do cool things. And I don't think this is fun. <laughs> I, the power level, the power level is there. Not questioning that whatsoever. But I'm going to look at that and go, yeah. Would countering somebody's wrath for free like be useful? Yeah. But like, I could play something more interesting here. And I know that command, that EDH in general, when I look at the price trends, tends to value power level over fun. So I'm not saying that I'm that I think the card's gonna be like, not, it's not like the card's gonna be a dollar. Uh, but I do think that there is a, a hook there in the way that Smothering Tithe is mm, will play both to the people who want to just do powerful things and also the people like myself who don't need every slot to be very powerful. People made the argument to me that blue there are blue decks that don't want to counter anything. I can believe it. Like if, you, if you're on some specific combo-y plan um, and you don't feel like you need the defense or you're not worried about board wipes or whatever other things you are most likely to want to negate. Maybe that's entirely true. They, but it's enough of a uber staple with open-ended... Like, the synergy of it is, I would like to counter something. <laughs> and I'm playing Commander. So, to me, that's... If not if not a 10, it's a 9. Like, it's really hard to, to picture a card. Like, if Soul Ring is a 10, I could easily see this being a 9. And I would not accept any argument that it's less than an 8. Yeah, I don't think that's unfair. I, I will grant you the, that. The black one is called Deadly Trick. It's four to exile a creature, but if you c- control a commander, it's free. So exile a creature free at instant speed. Ridiculous. That That's in every black deck forever. Because whatever, kill, whatever uh, seven kill spell point removals you were running, you'll swap one of them out for the free one. Uh, wait, hold on. It was, wait, what was the name of it? It's called Deadly Trick. Three and a black, instant. If you control a commander, pay it for free. Exile a creature. Hmm, it's not popping up. I don't see it. Sorry, I'm just trying to... Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, that card is also quite good. Not debating that. Uh, and then the green one is basically a fog for opponent's creatures. Um, prevent all damage that would be dealt this turn by creatures your opponent's control. Play it for, play it for free. Uh... Free frog, free fog, much less exciting. Free frog, free frog. <laughs> uh, well, now see that—that's a very potent card. You can really screw up combat with that, uh, and not having to pay. Yeah, that—that that I like. I like that card, and that to me feels more reasonable to play than the counter spell. Like I, the counter spell is like, oh yeah, I get to stop one spell. That's good. It's fine. But this is like, I have, I can have illusions of grandeur with that green spell. Maybe I'm just dumb. Maybe I like the wrong things. No, I don't like the wrong things. Everyone else is wrong. The, it's not me. It's the children who are wrong. <laughs> the white one's called Flawless Maneuver, two and a white, uh, and gives your, your all your creatures indestructible for free. That's just a... To me, that's... It's not clear you want that trick in your deck. Um, the green one and the white one wait. seem more cute to me. The blue one and the black one seem ubiquitous. What did you say the white one did? All your creatures are indestructible. 
don't know. That's, I mean, that's fine. No, see, but you get to cast it for free when your commander's out. So you've got your commander and you've got the board. Somebody pulls the trigger on like turn seven or eight to kind of, everyone's got their commander out. They pull the trigger to reset the board. Oops, I get to keep my whole board. Everyone else loses their commanders and is reset. That is, to to me, that's another card that like, I hear that and I'm like, now that's cool, right? Like it's not just, it's not always going to be useful, but the games where it works, it's going to be awesome. The, The red one is a redirect. You choose new targets for target spell or ability. Yeah, that's fine. Those, I think those are much more difficult to make use of. Like, it sounds like it's going to be great, but setting it up can be rather challenging. Is it spell or ability, you yeah. said? Yeah, I mean, that's better because, in you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I'm going to redirect this spell, and then they, like, tap, you know, my bizarre to kill your creature, and you're like, oh, I can't redirect that. Uh, but if this does spell or ability, that helps for sure. All right, we've been going pretty long here. we got plenty of time to talk about this before and next week, so I guess we'll wrap this up. Where can people find you online, Travis? I am, as always, on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I am here most weeks doing the cast with you. Doing your thing. You guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com, including a forthcoming article later this week that will deal with the hottest cards in my Coria. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. There's also... Uh, you know, we're pretty flexible these days, uh, given how things are going in the world. If you want to show your support by negotiating a different price tag to join our group, uh, we would certainly be open to that. I've already done that for a few people that have asked. Um, and there is also uh, a new button on our SoundCloud page. So if you listen to this podcast, but you don't really want to be a pro trader, but maybe you want to throw us a few bucks just to uh, keep bread in everybody's mouth through this period. We do have a little you, donations button set up and feel free to toy with that and toy with our emotions. Do you put a donate button on the SoundCloud SoundCloud page? was pushing it pretty hard, so I decided to experiment with it. Uh, you know, I, I'm fine. Well, whatever. I, uh, I, I will say this. There's been no less than eight people in the last four months who have reached out to say they, they wish there was a way to send us money for the podcast specifically. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't doubt that people have had that thought. Um, the most I've ever gotten out of that was when I was using Puka Trade regularly. There was a note in one of them that I had received a card from the guy, and he put a note in that said, "I I was able to trade into this because of your advice, so thank you." And that was nice, but yeah. no one ever slipped any money into the envelope. <laughs> So once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic of the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast by buying stuff from one of the only operations that is shipping. That brings us to the end of MTG Fast Finance podcast uh, 214, I believe. Really enjoyed our chat Sounds today, right. Travis. I hope you stay safe out there with your loved ones. Thank you, and you as well. Uh, be careful around that elevator. I hear those things are uh, 
Yeah, not only will they cut your head off, they'll also poison you to yeah. death. Um, thank you, James. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners, and we will see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.